So, guys, the thing about conspiracy theories is, do you remember when they used to be fun? Because I feel like pre-2020, conspiracy theories were kind of like the thing that your weird uncle would do or the guy at your work who's kind of weird, who goes on a rampage about stuff all the time. He'd be like super into it, but it would just be like the fringe who would be into conspiracy theories. So in a way, a lot of them were kind of fun and it also felt like pre-2020, a lot of conspiracy theories were just kind of like like silly, but in a, in a fun, silly way. Um, then I think post-2020, conspiracy theories got a little bit more sinister, uh, a little bit more mainstream. And because of the mainstream element of them, they became, in my opinion, way less fun. Um, so I did want to ask you guys today, what are your favorite... Consp- Actually, give me one. What is your favorite of all the conspiracy theories? What is your personal favorite? And why? <laughs> go go ahead, Zach. I'll, I'll I'll let you kick off at that one. Okay. So in terms of conspiracy theory, so I was raised Catholic, you know, whole life. Mom's side of the family's diehard Catholic, and for me, the conspiracy that I'm about to say would be such a big deal. And you know, the book it's by uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Oh, mm. so. Like, as a former Catholic, and at the time I was still in the church, the premise that Jesus had a regular relationship with Mary Magdalene and that he, you know, fathered children or a child uh, to give you a lineage throughout, you know, the centuries and the thousands of years, um, that knowledge would just, the Pope would be uh, invalid. You would basically just, for billions of people, would bring down an entire religion um, because it's all based on mythos and metaphorical stuff and what the church has basically transcribed as what the, you know, the tale of Jesus and, you know, what happens after him is, you know, his resurrection and stuff like that. But I feel that the conspiracy that, you know, there is a living descendant of the so-called, you know, son of God, you know, Father, is that Son, Holy Ghost? Is that what that book's about in that movie? I I, n- I never read any of it. I had no yeah, idea. it's it's about. Um, I won't give too much away, but Mary Magdalene uh, travels somewhere after Jesus's uh, crucifixion, and that's where Jesus' bloodline continues. And then throughout history, the church is trying to kill off all the descendants. So, and then it goes to modern day. And to me, that's as somebody from the church, it's. Such and he does such a, a a really good job of kind of putting facts together that don't really go together, but in the way of a conspiracy, you know, it makes it all fit together. You know, when he talks about the Last Supper and the the portraits and the different uh, metaphors, what symbols mean, and you know, the whole story of Mary Magdalene being his spouse. Um, so there's to me the conspiracy that Jesus had a bloodline. They, so it wasn't some crazy spiritual thing. It was actually like just a human being who had a kid. And so just to me, if that conspiracy was proven true, that would be a trip right there. So uh, yeah, that's my favorite conspiracy. Isn't The Last Temptation of Christ, the movie, the Scorsese movie, doesn't that um, suggest that Mary Magdalene and Jesus had a sexual relationship also? I think it's been a, it's been a while since I've seen that, but... Um... 
I think that was the big controversy of that. Yeah, that there was a relationship. Yeah, it does. And you know, the way the Vinci Code does it is it, like it does it in a smoother like it talks about how in the Bible how the word partner uh, mean or spouse means you know wife. So like there's scenes in the movie where Ian McKellen is in it. He's like a historian, and he's talking about how like you know Mary Magdalene was actually legitimately the wife of Jesus. So it wasn't anything like she wasn't like a whore the way the Bible perceives it to be. Uh, <laughs> she was actually, you know, she's really important in that uh, that whole uh, storyline of like what the conspiracy of the book and the movie talk about. Huh. It, interesting. Is something about the way that you say that with your Southern accent, accent when you say the word whore? Whore. It's, uh, it sounds terrible. Not terrible. I mean, it just sounds chilling, like truly she's bone not chilling a whore. when you do it. She's not a whore. I know. There's just something very like... <laughs> I could imagine you saying like "Welcome to Candyland." Like, something chilling about your accent. <laughs> Not so southern, gentlemen. Okay, you know who's next? It's you, Eric. Um, so I, I thought about this for a while, and <clears throat> I, I kind of, I was throwing around like the, um, you know, there's the typical ones like the JFK, the uh, Marilyn Monroe ones. Um, and then I started thinking about like the Mothman, uh, with like the Mothman prophecies, like the, the conspiracy theory behind that whole thing. But, uh, I kind of, I settled on the kind of a more con contemporary one that really blows my mind, um, when I think about it, or I should say it blows my mind that, that people actually bought into it for, a, a while and and maybe they still do and I, I don't I don't really know and that is the conspiracy that the world is run by pedophile a cabal of pedophiles that uh, drink baby blood and uh, worship Satan. Um, I guess that's loosely uh, connected to Pizzagate. I don't know. I I really don't know. But the more that I thought about it. And um, just molded around in my mind. I, I, it's just, it's so crazy to me. One, I, I kind of, I put myself in, I, I put myself in the shoes of the people who are committing the, the conspiracy themselves. And I'm thinking, I work a full time job. I, I basically have a part time job outside of this um, when, when I'm teaching. Uh, so I have extracurricular things that I do. I, we do the podcast, you know, I, so I have to watch a certain amount of movies in a week or I like to at least. Um, and then with, with Scott, Scott does a full-time job. The whole thing has to take care of, uh, animals and like all that, all that stuff. And then has to edit the podcast on top of this. And, and then like Zach having to watch movies, full-time job, the whole thing. And in like all of that, you and then so the job of like running the country you you throw that on top of that and then somehow you're going to find the time to um 
uh, find a bunch of like underage kids uh, and drink their blood and pray to the uh, unholy god and, and uh, the great world destroyer, whatever you know, and 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 then somehow like balance the budget or something you know, or, or like talk about like transportation and and all this sort of stuff. So it just it's so bizarre and weird to me to to think that people actually. Uh, led any uh, credentials to such a a strange conspiracy, just uh, just bizarre beyond all all um, all thought. Because who has the time? Who has the time? I I barely have time to do anything. I, I can't imagine running the free run, running the free world while you know having an unholy cabal of Satanists. It just, it sounds exhausting. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, it does have, does have the time. It's the people who, the people who uh, profit off this, other people who are like <laughs> sitting around reading about this shit all the time or on the phone. <laughs> they clearly have the time because they, they're the ones that keep spreading it. It's funny that you brought that up too. Cause I don't want to get too conspiracy theory ish on like to like Alex Jones on this podcast. Yeah. Um, but obviously I think all of it's bullshit. Like all of it, pretty much every conspiracy theory, I kind of think is bullshit. Yeah. But what's interesting about that specific one is that that actual like um, urban legend or myth about the drinking of children's blood. Yeah. That goes all the way back to like Salem witch trials, all the way back to like um, the um, how they would like ostracize Jewish people in communities, and it goes all. So basically, it's all kind of started from this like. Um, Jewish fear of Jewish people and it's just kind of like the per- that one yeah it's perpetuated is, over the years yeah yeah it's like mutated and mutated and mutated to right now it's the Hollywood Jewish cabal you know what I mean who was doing it but it's all basically like this anti-semitic thing that's basically all it is it's like it's fucked anyway I don't get too much into that um <laughs> Well, because I knew Eric would do something really depressing like that, <laughs> when I was thinking about it, one of my main stipulations for the the conspiracy theory is that I didn't want to do anything, well, I didn't want to touch anything Q-related or anything to do with, like, the, or, or any conspiracy theory where it, it hinges on the sufferance of people. Yeah. Um, so I was more interested in, like you said, like Mothman or like the supernatural um, or the ones that are just flat out fun. So I actually have two. Mm-hmm. So my first one is an honorable mention, but probably the most fun is the conspiracy theory that Paul McCartney died in 1966. Oh, yeah. Um, the whole Paul is dead. Um, and he was replaced by... I, so I, as far as I, I read, the, I actually spent a little bit of time looking it up just to try and get the, the full details of it. But it... They, when Paul died, it was his car apparently went off the road, hit a patch of ice, went off the road, he went into a tree and died in 1966. So they hosted a competition to find uh, Paul McCartney lookalike. And this guy called Billy Shears apparently won it. <laughs> and therefore they inst- instated him in the Beatles as Paul McCartney and it continued releasing music. Hence um, certain lyrical references to um, Paul was the walrus or whatever. And, like, um, mm-hmm. and then... Um, if you play certain Beatles records backwards, you get John saying that I buried Paul. <laughs> and then most notably is the picture, I think it's an Abbey Road cover where they're crossing the street and Paul is barefoot, yeah. which apparently in some religions, you would bury the dead bare, barefoot. Yeah. In its, and so it's basically like a funeral procession yeah. going across the road. Um, 
just really fun. I, like really fun. I like that one because because um, you're thinking to yourself, okay, they replaced Paul, but they found someone. Let's say they found someone who looks like astonishingly like him, like like a mirror like him, but he also had the talent of Paul McCartney. <laughs> Well, I mean, and then, you know, they kind of stopped touring after that, like a couple years after that, didn't they? So really, he didn't have to be in the spotlight on tour that much. Yeah, for sure. Oh, wow, well, Zach, are you getting it? What about, okay, what well. about like, like Wings? <laughs> well, yeah. No, but that was Billy Shears. Oh, like, okay. Billy Shears married Linda, and like, he was the real talent. You know what I mean? Paul actually wasn't the talent. It turns out Billy Shears was like just as talented as Paul, if not more talented, mm. and went on and did, you know, what <laughs> some people argue is some of the greatest records of all time, which is insane. And, but it's just fun. I like the idea that, like, like kids smoking grass in, like, college campuses in the 70s or, like, the late 60s were, like, flipping vinyls over and playing them backwards and, like, getting high and being like, oh, my God, you know what I mean, looking for the clues. <laughs> Paul's dead. <laughs> I love all that shit. It's super fun. Um, so that was be my first, but my second and my main one is what I can't get enough of, which is my all-time favorite conspiracy theory, which is the flat earth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, Eric, I, for a second, I thought you were going to say it, and I was like, shit, I don't have a backup if you do say it. Um, but I love that. I just love it. It's just so batshit crazy. Yeah. And it's um, it's so wonderful and goofy that like, I I find like, so there's a really good documentary about it. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, I think it's called like Beyond the Rim or something like that. It's like a, 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 a dump, uh, it's like a documentary that sets out to show every, all of the key players involved in the modern flat earth conspiracy, mm-hmm. but then also debunks the whole thing at the end. And it is so brutal when they debunk the flat earth conspiracy. So basically how they end up doing it is they're following these guys who are like hell bent that the earth is round, sorry, that the earth is flat. And um, what they do is they set up this experiment and they go, we'll prove conclusively that the earth is flat. So they get a laser pointer, this like super powered laser pointer. And what they do is they go, we're going to shine it all the way across this really flat stretch of land. And what will happen is when we're going to shine it through a hole, so it would be a hole in a wall like that. And it's, it's perfectly calibrated and straight. And what that'll prove to you is we're going to s- send it over a huge distance, which will therefore pass the curvature of the earth. And it'll go in and it'll prove to you that it goes straight through the hole and that it's perfectly lined and there is actually no curvature to the earth. So like, they're like, oh my God, you're really going to prove it? And like, yeah, we got this. I know you've been filming <laughs> us, but we got it. It's going to be awesome. And then they set it up and it just doesn't work. <laughs> the laser just misses the hole by like whatever the, cu- the curvature of the earth would be. <laughs> and then they're like, oh shit, um, maybe there's something wrong with the laser. Let's do it oh, again. Yeah, and they yeah, do it again course. and they're like, oh fuck. And then they just basically go home and it's really sad. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I feel bad for them. Um, but I think why I like flat earth is because I think flat earth is harmless. I like the fact that it's um, it goes all the way back. So apparently like in ancient Greece, some people, this is like... Th- the year 300 or whatever, like some philosophers or whatever, and, and like mathematicians were like, hey, the earth could be flat. But obviously as they progressed and science progressed, they figured out that it's not not the case. But I just love how here we are in 2022 and like celebrities and people are going on television and people are like convinced that the earth is flat despite <laughs> all, like despite everything. I just think it's really funny. And um, I, I like it. I like how goofy it is. I like how harmless it is in a way because nobody's really getting hurt by this conspiracy theory. You know what I mean? It's not like there's a shadowy global cabal or like there's no pedophiles or murdering or like nothing like weird 
but it's it's just a goofy a goofy harmless conspiracy theory you know um which i really like but to tie in what we were all talking about and why i think's interesting as i wanted to throw the question to you guys is obviously it's post pandemic the boom in conspiracy theory then in, in the sense that it went mainstream and now it's not just your nerds it's not just your your geeks it's like everybody's mother the uncle like the brother everybody everybody is convinced of all these crazy conspiracy theories right now and like i i don't know what the allure is to to a lot of these and like so i was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts about like you know like why is it we become like so obsessed with them uh well it's i think that you know for one you know we have kind of we're all connected one way or the other you know because of the internet and we can connect anytime 24 7 and if your mind is just racing or wanting to know something or wanting to find something you're always going to find something if you're out there looking for an answer you're going to find the answer that suits whatever your narrative is and it doesn't help that you can go onto any type of you can find any forum about what you're trying to investigate and they're going to have the answers that kind of work for you, you know? So I think that there is so much information out there that it's almost impossible not to, um, attach yourself to some sort of weird conspiracy theory. If, if you have like, motive and and reason to look for it yeah i think you know another part of it is you know where we've seen all the previous conspiracies conspiracy theories talked about but historically you know there's still documentaries coming out you know eric mentioned the Marilyn monroe uh there's a new documentary mm -hmm. about her with some new information about you know whether she was actually dead when the paramedics got there because the documentary a uh, documentarian interviewed multiple ambulance drivers that said she was technically still alive when they were on their way to the hospital. So I think that gets everybody riled up that, hey, you know, there's still this stuff from the past that, you know, we're still finding out new things. So this stuff happening right now, we need to get to the bottom of it real quick, like the pandemic and, you know, COVID. It's like we got to get to what happened as soon as we can or else it's going to get keep getting covered up by layer by layer by layer as the decades go by and you know if there is something there like eric said some everybody's looking for something but if there's legitimately something there we may never find it if you wait too long um and that's where the whole you know everybody loves to try to i guess outwit the government because um, <laughs> everybody thinks you know the government is responsible for this and that and it's like You've got people, you know, online who said, you know, we found this document or, you know, this got un, uh, like released by the Department of Homeland Security. And then they'll take that and run with it. And, you know, like you said, create an entire new conspiracy over it and look for those susceptible, you know, innocent people who don't know any better. You know, maybe they're just they're looking for something in their life that makes sense because it's out of control and, you know, every aspect. So I think, you know the older conspiracy conspiracy theories um with new information coming out that just it just pushes people to really find new ones so that you know maybe they can start their own conspiracy theory that'll get you know super well known and stuff like that yeah it's it's fascinating i think like 
I think what, what you've got two things going hand in hand right now. So I think um, historically, there's always been they, like in. I hope anybody listening to this doesn't um, get the wrong idea when I say this because I, I don't mean spiritedly, and I'm not like I'm not saying that I'm like super smart or whatever. Um, but I think that historically, you've always had people who were like prone to suggestion, open to suggestion, and people who were like kind of like um, easily led, or let's just say not particularly overly intelligent and I think historically if you were any of those things you did not have access to a wealth of information in your pocket at all times so what you would do is you would go to work hang out with your friends shoot bottle rockets you know what I mean like I don't know whatever sell firecrackers and like I don't know whatever you do right <laughs> just be like a total normal you know what I mean watch tv whatever but now what's happened is you have this permanently online access to this wealth of information. So what happens is you have all of these people who are very susceptible, susceptible using this communication tool, which can give them anything they want to learn immediately, right? Regardless of where the facts or where any of the information was sourced from. And then combining with that, what you have is you have um, this other two-pronged attack where you have grifters, Everybody realized that with YouTube and YouTube algorithms, conspiracy very uh, conspiracy theory videos do very very well on YouTube. Um, therefore, what happened is you had this whole like influx of people creating content specifically for the algorithm that pushes this belief that is reinforced by the people who now immediately believe that. So it's like this this snake that's eaten itself in this this industry that's like growing and growing and it's spiraling out of control, or it had been. Case in point the past few years but i think what's happened is like like if you think about like alex jones he made like something like 1.6 million dollars selling supplement sales and supplements over his podcast or whatever he was doing the alex jones show so like he's a grifter he's a businessman you know what i mean he's like he's like i'm gonna say a bunch of crazy shit because people want to hear this because a lot of people are frustrated a lot of people don't have because ultimately we don't have answers to everything so when all of a sudden somebody is giving you an answer to something it makes you feel a little less a little less alone it makes you feel like a little less like um oh well i'm i'm not the crazy one then because i was wondering why i, I, I keep getting fucked by the government you know what i mean mm. like why do i feel like why do i feel like i'm like and like everything I say is not important. Like I, I think like I'm getting, scr I'm getting screwed over. And then all of a sudden it's like, here, yeah, oh, by the way, the government's fucking you. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, really? Oh, you think that too? Oh, well, then guess what? We, we're friends now. And then it's like, oh, awesome. Oh, and this guy, he's going to make videos about it. Wicked. Let's buy his t-shirts and I'll buy some supplements from him. And then we've got this little immediate community based around people who are very, very unhappy. And who doesn't want ultimately answers to big questions because really there's not a lot of answers to a lot of big questions at all. So when you get answers to questions that are kind of like inanswerable, it's like, it's very satisfying in a way, regardless of whether they're real or not. And I think that's very attractive to people. Like even to my, like I'd admit it, like I like a lot of these, I think they're fun. Um, but let's flip it on its head then. I'm 100% convinced that some conspiracy theories probably are true because there's no smoke without fire sometimes, in which case of the conspiracies that are out there, classic ones, is, are there any that you actively believe are true? Um, I don't know. I don't believe a lot. Um, but had but, to guess. <laughs> but that's to say I don't know. I don't follow or I don't run in that in that circle or I don't seek it out. So... I, I would assume that everything that I know about 
is pretty commonplace. Like, um, I, I always kind of held on to the idea that, uh, it was ridiculous that, um, Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy. Hey, that's what I was going to say. I mean, that, yeah. that seems like the, Me too. <laughs> like the, um, that's like, seems like that that's the cream of the crop one, you know, where, where it's like, that's the top the very top conspiracy theory right there. But I mean, I could be wrong about that, but that's, that's just, that's just the one that, um, so many people know about and so many people have so many opinions about, you know, where, where say like flat earth or like, you know, the crazy cabal or, or, um, Bigfoot or something like that, where it's, it's almost like, almost some fringe groups are just like really honed in on that one thing. Um, but to me, it's, it's like that one, it's, it's possible some shady stuff was going down, especially in that time period. And I, I don't know. It it just makes sense that that there's a possibility that that could be true. Um, but most everything else, I'm like, uh, who ha- who has the time? <laughs> who has the time? I'm just trying to live my life here. <laughs> uh, I mean, I uh, I do enjoy just historically wise uh, that J.P. Morgan, you know, purposely had the Titanic sunk for the insurance. <laughs> I, I didn't even know that. Yes, one. I, I didn't even know that was a thing. I do think that. Well, no, that was that was like a a, a fringe conspiracy on. You know why? You know the captain of the ship chose to like haul ass through an ice field and stuff like that. You know it was it was supposedly at the behest of J.P. Morgan to to tell the captain that he needed to speed up even though there's ice flows because he was hoping for some kind of wreck because it apparently cost him so much money in his pocket to help how, uh, fund. How that. did he get in contact with them? Man, I don't know. I'm a well. <laughs> You've got you had like Bruce Ismay. You had like you had the constructor. You had one of the financiers that was on the ship. So you know he feasibly could have just gave him a ring, you know, and you know told him. But I don't know. I always thought that was kind of funny because you're gonna risk you know three thousand people's lives just for some insurance money. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but like if you think about three thousand people's lives, that's also you know think about the death toll in nine eleven, and people still think that's a conspiracy, like. Again, anything to do with the loss of like a lot of human life, it's not really that like appealing to me because like, yeah. I just, I, I'd rather try and see the, I, I can't imagine, or I don't want to imagine a world in which people are that disposable that you could just do something like that. Just like the AIDS epidemic, how, how like Russia spread that lie that it was like the US were doing it, like um, the CIA did it uh, to target um uh, like black people and homosexuals. Like, I don't like to, like, even if even if that was true, uh, like fuck that. Like I don't want to think about shit like that. So I'm gonna give humanity the benefit of the doubt. I think if I had to put money on one, it would be the the Lee Harvey Oswald, and then actually it, the Jeffrey Epstein. Like I'd probably say he was killed in in prison. I mean, like that's wild. He had to be. Yeah. And then um, I would say third. And this is my, this is what I think is, I think the moon landing was faked. <laughs> there you go. Hey, no, it's pla- It's so plausible. Just because I love the idea that like Stanley Kubrick would have directed the moon landing, yeah. which I think is like super dope. So like, I kind of want that one to be fake because that would be super awesome if that was true. Um, 
yeah, that's about it. Okay, before we go on too much, I could do all, talk all day about this shit, so we're not going to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, favorite conspiracy movies. So, because of conspiracies, because of the popularity of popular culture everywhere, a ton of bloody conspiracy theory movies, a ton of them. Um, so, narrow it down. I just want what you think is your favorite conspiracy theory based or themed movie uh, of all time. Yeah. Go for it, first. Zach. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> uh, I kept mine in historical wise just because I like the history stuff, but uh, it's a movie called The Conspirator. Uh, it's oh. got Robin Wright, James McAvoy. Uh, what it's based on is the trial and sentencing to death of uh, Mary Surratt and the co-conspirators to the Lincoln assassination. Now, the whole premise is that you know, she ran a boarding house where, you know, John Wilkes Booth and all the all the conspirators met. And the whole argument was that what did she know? Did she know enough that she should have gone to, you know, the union or oh, was she cool. harboring? And so she's in she's been sentenced to death. She's in this uh, fort in her cell. And James McAvoy is kind of this reluctant lawyer who gets assigned to her. Um but it goes from there, and you know he starts to really think that maybe she is innocent of it. But it's got a it's got a really good build to it, um, kind of like a thrilling thing. Cause you're not sure what's going to happen at the end if you're not aware of the ending. So, um, yeah, I really like the conspirator. I, I've never heard of that, Zach, and it sounds like it sounds pretty sweet actually. And I love McAvoy, so if he's in it, I'm a, I'll, I'll watch that. I'm just got yeah. Tom Wilkinson's in it, I believe, as well. So, oh, dude, that's a good cast. Yeah, I I remember hearing about it, and I, and I remember it having like a really good cast, but it kind of it missed my radar. I think probably when it came out, but I I have a I had a pretty good idea of what it was about. Um, anyway, so um. My movie, I I like I looked up a bunch of them and I and I had seen a handful of them, but I was thinking, you know what? One I really kind of enjoyed was was a movie about a movie, and um, this one is kind of split up into a bunch of different theories about the same movie, and that um, and the director. So mine is Room Two Thirty Seven. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I'm so pleased he got that one. That's great. Yeah. Um. I, I I thought it was funny that you started talking about Kubrick and the moon landing. I was like, oh, that's perfect. Um, because it's such a crazy, it's such a crazy movie to kind of, uh, attach yourself to. I mean, The Shining is just it's it's an incredible movie. It's it's a horror masterpiece, you know. And then, uh. Kubrick being involved in it it just adds that extra layer of mystery um and then that and the movie itself the room 237 people just kind of grabbed onto these in crazy crazy theories about you know there's the moon landing there is the uh underlying significance of of uh the room itself like the in the book i think it was 217 but he renamed it 237 for some other reason you know it's about uh the genocide of the native americans like there's all it's split up into these three i i forget three or four different kind of uh theories about what the movie is really about um it and it's super fascinating 
and a lot of fun and really crazy. But you, once you watch it and, and, and these people are, are telling you uh, their theories about it, you start to kind of slowly get convinced of the research that they've done. And, and, you know, you always love it when they're like, well, I talked to like so-and-so experts or I talked to this many people and they said, and it's like, yeah, but you know, (laughs) there's no real fact to it. It's just like opinion basically, but it is, it's such a crazy, fun, um, intense movie, uh, that, it, it, it's it's insane to me that that you can attach any sort of theory to to any movie and make sense of it. So, Room Tier to two thirty seven. If you haven't seen, it, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but you should definitely um, do yourself a favor if you like if you like The Shining anyway, because they do this this great thing where where one person plays it forwards, plays the movie from beginning to end. And then there's another one, uh, a guy who plays it from the end to the beginning. And then there's points where they met, where the movie meshes during, during certain scenes. And it's like, it's a, it's laid over, uh, as they run it, the movie is laid over each other and they match up in such a weird way that, that it's like, it almost seems intentional when you're watching it. So uh, I can't say enough about them, about that movie. It's it's, I think it's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Have you seen that Zach? No, I'm about to give it a watch. I have not seen that. Dude. It's so good. If I, I'm actually going to try and watch it tonight. Um, again, if I find it on streaming, I'll text you, let you know where it is. But I think it was on like, um, it was on like Amazon prime, I think for a little Maybe. while. Um, yeah, it's so good. And like, just, they do this really cool thing where they talk about like, um, the geography of the of the of the the Overlook Hotel, yeah. where they actually like theoretically map out how big it would be based around the rooms when Danny's riding his bike through. Oh, okay. Um, and then like it's just fascinating because like yeah because like this there's, there's some shots he does where like Danny comes from different places that would be like geographically impossible based around where the, the hotel is but then also was that point, point in it but like they just read it in like they read, everything on yeah, such a like granular so detail. much into it yeah yeah it's it's really fun all right it's sounds really, like really a, sounds like a watch yeah for sure um Mine is uh, the movie Under the Silver Lake, uh, which came out, let me have a look, I think it was 2018. Now, this is David Robert Mitchell's follow-up to It's It Follows, which mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody's seen. Well, I know you guys have both seen It Follows, yeah? Mm-hmm. Superb, superb American horror movie. Um, the guy's like, uh, that was his second uh, feature film, so like... Um, the hype was pretty high for Under the Silver Lake. And I guess there was a lot of problems in filming it. Um, I think it was like a lot of reshoots. Um, it came out on A24. Um, it was went to Cannes and then it was like buried pretty much. Like I think like mm-hmm. they, they showed it at Cannes and then like they made him do a bunch of reshoots or something. Uh, anyway, it's kind of complicated. But what's interesting about the movie is like um, it kind of tanked and it kind of disappeared and people don't talk about it. It stars Andrew Garfield and uh, Andrew Garfield's like this like mid thirties kind of like stoner. Um, He's super into like playing Nintendo and he's into conspiracy theories and he's into like a bunch of goofy shit. Um, He lives in this apartment complex in, uh, in California and, what happens is he becomes attracted to his neighbor who is played by Riley Keough. Um, and they don't really have a relationship or anything. He just fancies it. And one night she invites him over and they, they he stays over the night, but they just watch TV. They don't hook up or anything. And anyway, um, 
The next few days, he realizes that she's gone missing and she's just moved out all of a sudden from that apartment, completely gone. Her and her roommate's gone. Everybody's gone from the apartment, but there's a symbol drawn on the wall of the apartment. And he goes in, he becomes obsessed with trying to track down what happened to her. Um, she also had a dog in it. That, so the, at that particular moment in time, there is somebody going around murdering dogs in the, in the neighborhood. So you have these overlapping things that happen. So she goes missing. You can't track her down. You have somebody going around murdering dogs. And then you also have this uh, supposedly like this uh, woman who dresses up as an owl who shows up and kills people, seduces them and kills people. So you have these three things happening all, <laughs> all at once. And basically he um, is trying to uncover what's happened to her. So as he starts tracking it down, he starts hanging out with this guy who writes this comic book called Under the Silver Lake. And it's like this local, like locally made like... Um, I forgot the term for those comic books, but it's just like ones that like people make themselves, you know what I mean? And uh, it's called Under the Silver Lake and it's about conspiracies and about stories about things that are happening in that neighborhood. And then um, one thing leads to another in like without giving away, it's difficult to talk about without giving away spoilers, but basically you uncover, like he uncovers this huge network of uh, famous people who are basically entombing themselves with uh, women to live forever just like ancient pharaohs did you also have a guy who is like the, the the king of homeless people throughout the entire world you have this guy who is like a um okay spoilers for under the silver lake so i'm not going to talk anymore but the rest of it's going to be spoilers um then uh so if you listen tough shit i don't give a shit anyway um he meets this guy who's called the songwriter and the songwriter is a guy who's written every single pop song Every single charted pop song over the past 50 years, everything from like Elvis, the Beatles, um, Nirvana, everything. He wrote all of the songs. He's called the songwriter and he meets him and like <laughs> the guy's super creepy. And then he, he beats him to death with Kurt Cobain's uh, guitar. And um, the movie just gets completely batshit crazy. And like, I've given away everything really that happens at the end of the movie. But, um, and it's all about this crazy conspiracy theory. And that's what happens to Riley Keough and her friends is what they did. They weren't kidnapped. They actually signed up to be part of this rich man's harem. And they get, they sign up to be buried alive underneath a supermarket in this super fancy apartment with this millionaire. And uh, they're going to live out the rest of the days there. And they can speak to their friends and family via video, like Skype, like we're doing. And that's pretty much what he uncovers at the end of the movie. Um, so the movie's batshit crazy. So I think what happened is if if you if you do get high and watch this movie, it totally vibes. It's like a total vibe. <laughs> but like um I think it was just too much for people. I think too many people I mean, were like, what the fuck? Like yeah. it's too much. It's too crazy. That sounds like a heavy ending right there. <laughs> it's crazy, but it has like a really good cast and like um Garfield is just perfect. Like he's absolutely perfect. And like part of the way he solves the conspiracy of where the where the uh the wealthy people are going to, to to take these women is he um him and his buddy are getting high and they play nintendo a lot and they have copies of nintendo power magazine and in like issue one of nintendo power there's a map to the legend of zelda and he starts using the map to the legend of zelda to find people like health it's just the homeless king which is <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, it's a total stoner movie right there it's a total stoner movie it's so good it's really really good i love it um it's a conspiracy. I mean, it's about a multiple conspiracies, but like it's fun and it's kind of like, you know, the fun conspiracy that I like. So yeah, Under the Silver Lake. Um, I can't wait to see what he does next. He hasn't done anything since 2018 and that does worry me because he doesn't have anything listed as under production right now either. Mm. Uh, 
at least not that I've seen. I might have to check IMDb, but I really hope he does because I think he's a real talent and like I really want to see what he does next. Like I'm super into filmmakers who will do like a really, really good movie, but then just go fucking crazy and like overshoot. You know what I mean? And like, I'd rather see somebody like swing for the fences like that yeah. than do something boring. Oh, um, like uh, Shane Carruth. Yeah, yeah, he's like Shane Carruth, exactly, yeah. Like, just, like, have so much self-belief that they can do, you know what I mean? Like, it's Mm -hmm. infectious, and I like that, you know? So, yeah, Under the Silver Lake um, is my choice. So that's our conspiracy movies. So, if you listen to this podcast right now, you're almost an hour in, and you're like, what the fuck? I thought this is a movie. (laughs) Like, the guys finally lost their minds. What I might do is, just to test the YouTube algorithm, like so if things based if content based around conspiracy theories performs very very well what i should just do is not name this podcast based around the movie that we're going to be talking about and i'll just name it like i'll name it qanon slash bigfoot slash flat earth slash such and such and we'll see how many listens we get and i bet you we get like 10 times the audience you throw lizard people in there you'll get 20 times yeah lizard people lizard queen all that shit um so the movie we're talking about today is Blowout. Blowout is a very famous Brian De Palma movie starring John Travolta. Um, so before we start getting into the nitty gritty of the movie, Eric, why are we talking about Blowout today? Um, I I, I was. Um, it's funny that you mentioned YouTube. Like uh, I'll go through these things where I'm like I'm watching YouTube and these little clips will will come up and and. Um, like like little three two two three minute movie clips of of movies that I had seen before, and one of them was uh, Carlito's Way, and I was like, oh yeah, I, I really love Carlito's Way, and I started watching it. And I watched a few more clips, and then I just started thinking about Brian De Palma, and I, and I was like, well, you know what, I really haven't kind of taken a deep dive or watched a a lot of De Palma movies in a while, and it like turns out I own like. I think four. I own four De Palma movies, and I'm like, why haven't I watched anything? You know, I think I, I own uh, Blowout, uh, Dress to Kill, Sisters, and um, one other one. I might be Carlito's Way. I'm not sure. Um, or Carrie. And then, I, yeah, I started looking at his stuff, and I was like, wow, I can't believe you made this or made that. And I was like, we have to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of this guy also he's he's one of tarantino's favorite directors so i mean once you watch it once you watch blowout and you kind of you can i think you can kind of see what tarantino saw in travolta well at least in this movie i'm sure there were other things as well you know but there's something kind of very almost special about travolta at this time you know, so, um, yeah, blowout. I, I think it's, um, I, th- I thought it would be a pretty good one to check out. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's nice. I like it when we get to do older movies like this, uh, it, it, we, we have an off week. Um, the next big movie that we're going to see it, we're going to see on Saturday. So we had an off week. So I like it when we can catch up and, and, you know, rewatch stuff. Cause I, I've seen blow up like two or three times, but it's like over the years, you know yeah. what I mean? So it's been a long time since I've seen it, but what's interesting about, uh, De Palma, in general, and and you're right about Tarantino too. I think Tarantino is even on record saying that's why he cast Travolta in Pulp Fiction was mm. because of Blowout, his performance in Blowout. Um, but like in De Palma's career, like everybody know, like 
if you listen to this podcast, you're probably a bit of a movie geek, in which case you'll know De Palma, because De Palma's made so many classic, classic movies, like The Untouchables, Carlita's Way, um, Mission Impossible, the, the list goes on, like mm-hmm. on and on and on. He's actually made a ton of movies. But um, at this point in um, De Palma's career, this movie came out in 1981. So the main movies he had before this, the ones of note that people are going to recognize are Dressed to Kill, uh, came out the year before this, um, Carrie came out in 1976, Phantom of the Paradise 1974. So like Carrie was quite a big hit at the time when it came out. And so Carrie, he was like um, riding on a lot of success with that. Um, and I think a lot of goodwill because of because of that movie. So what's interesting about this movie is, I don't know if you, you guys knew this, but this movie, Blout, released the same time as Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh. And what's interesting about this and Raiders of the Lost Ark is Blowout cost exactly the same amount of money to make as Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, no, Joe. Which is crazy because they must have thrown money at him post-carry mm-hmm. and been like, okay, here's a ton of money. And I guess what happens is with the critical reception to this movie, like it was very, very well critically received completely, but it was not particularly well received by audiences based around the ending of the movie, which we'll get into. Yep. And it's kind of a, a dour ending to the movie, which in my opinion is like the perfect end to the movie. Yep. Um, I, I couldn't imagine this movie any other way to be honest with you it's kind of like the the thought of how this movie having a happy traditional hollywood ending would just kill the whole movie in my opinion um so it was like it was it was very much a critical success but not a um financial success so to speak and then after blowout he followed this blowout up with scarface and i guess the rest is history really because boom i mean talk about like an explosion and like it just he just blew up after that and that that kind of like wrote his check for the next few years. You know what I mean? All the movies he got to make after that yeah. is probably all because of Scarface. But um, speaking about John Travolta too, though, if we talk about John Travolta, that period of his time, like what was John Travolta doing around this? Like, was is this movie, this movie will be post-Greece. This is staying like, alive. This is like after Saturday Night Fever. This is like 81, I think. So staying yeah. alive was like 80 or something like that personal life or anything like that um but it's so funny i was just looking up john travolta on wikipedia there to see if i can find a list of his movies of where he was first thing that comes up is sexual assault allegations <laughs> is every is everybody fucking sketchy like come on yeah do do? everyone's sketchy um it's a conspiracy yeah, ultimate conspiracy <laughs> yeah all right so here we go so john travolta filmography so yeah 1981 is blowout so yeah you're right zach uh greece was 1978 saturday night fever 77 um, he was in Carrie in 1976, but I think everybody really knows John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever in Greece. Like, yeah, that, that's like you know what I mean. Well, there, yeah, it. it's that, and then was he Welcome Back Carrie. Cotter? Was he? Oh, was, that's right, Welcome, Welcome Back, Back Cotter, Cotter before his movie career. So is that a TV show? Yeah. Oh yeah. You, well, I wouldn't know that because <laughs> I'm not a Yankee. You know what I mean? <laughs> you you have to watch that, and it's uh, it's so. I don't remember when it came when it came out, but I remember watching it as a kid, and it's um, it's all about him and his friends in high school, like in I don't know Brooklyn or the Bronx or something like that in the seventies, and their teachers uh, Car- Carter, and it's just about them just being hoodlums. So, and he was one of the main uh, stars in that. I like the theme song. Yeah. <laughs> You'd recognize I'll the insert, theme song, yeah. yeah. But I, but I, I'll, I'll insert it right here. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. 
I, I probably won't, but I will probably get sued. Um, so I'm not going to do that. Um, so yeah, like Saturday Night Fever Grease, huge, like, like he's, he's kind of an iconic figure in pop culture, John Travolta, because of those two movies specifically. Um, what's interesting is post blowout his career. So this is the same year Zach is staying alive. Same year. And then after that, it's kind of nowhere land in terms of like things that you know until from 1981, kind of no man's land till 1989. Then it's look who's talking. Okay. So that was a big success, you know, like family comedy movie. Um, and then he kind of just went garbage. So he, he made the follow up to look who's talking, which is like, look who's talking now, which I've never even seen. So from 1981 blowout classic, all time classic movie. He's not really in anything good in my opinion till 1994 and that's Pulp Fiction. Mm. So that's like a 13 year gap in which case Tarantino more or less singly, single-handedly resurrected his career. I mean, now I'm not saying that Tarantino is enti- entirely thankful to be thankful for that because obviously Travolta just gives a brilliant performance. It's not like it's just like stunt casting. Travolta is just a brilliant actor in my opinion. Yeah. So like he, he deserves it, that, that second chance that he got. Then he kind of has a pretty good run because then he, he followed up with Get Shorty, another classic movie, very much playing to type. Um, then he kind of goes off the rails again, bless him, for a few years, does some pretty poor movies. He does like Broken, Broken Arrow. Arrow, the terrible genre say. movie. Broken Arrow. Um, Michael, Phenomenon. Like General's Daughter, I do like that movie. Yeah, well, that's, that's a little later. That's like towards 1999. So like, He's got a, a bit of a bad run. He does redeem himself, and John Woo redeems himself with Face Off in 1997, which is fucking classic. Like, can't argue that. Um, Civil Action, which is like a law um, thriller. Um, Thin Red Line he has an appearance in, but then everybody's Everybody in the Thin was Red in Line. That, yeah. Oh, I didn't know he so was I in can't... that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like fucking 29 major stars in that movie. Um, Primary Colors that year, which is a pretty good movie. Um, General's Daughter, which I like, 1999. And then, dude, then it's like Battlefield Earth. <laughs> um, domestic Disturbance, Swordfish, terrible movie. Um, a lot of just shocking movies. The the sequel to Get Shorty, Be Cool, which is a terrible movie in my opinion. Wild Hogs. Um, oh, yeah. The Take of a Pelham 1, 2, 3. I think... Which isn't, isn't bad. Yeah, I don't think that one's that bad. Uh, I think um, there is an argument that can be made if you stack... Travolta's movies against Cage's movies and they are basically a similar trajectory. It's like started really strong, like really strong and then had a high and then they've just been riding that high and and it's slowly been like coming down the mountain in a, in a sort of way but it's like they're both like Act, like acting like in everything it's just like constant like what's this about okay i'll act in it what's this about okay i'll act in it it's just like just workers you know that's just what they are so it's like they almost make those similar movies you know that they're in everything and they'll be in anything sort of thing well i think like yeah for me lately you know nick cage always had that you know straight to dvd you know for the last 15 20 years but like i'm a red box dude i still go and i've noticed in the last three or four years that like travolta i see i keep seeing movies of his pop up that i've never mm-hmm. ever heard of and i'm like oh you must be just wanting anything lately for some work <laughs> oh yeah and like one particular one that came out in 2019 i don't know if you guys seen it but it's the directorial di- directorial debut of a true author and his name is fred durst <laughs> <laughs> is that fanatic 
Yes. Have you guys seen that? <laughs> I have not. I've heard I, I've heard of it and I've seen clips of it and I'm like, oh man. I rented it. Oh I watched no it. way. Yeah. It's it's one of those like it's like the it's like the um what's it? Um Tommy Wiseau movie, The Room, whatever. It's like it's one of those movies where it's so fucking bad that it's actually kinda awesome. Um <laughs> And like Travolta plays like a developmentally challenged uh, man in it. It's so, oh no, it is, oh no, it's so bad. It's like um, you remember uh, Simple Jack, um, <laughs> which is what's his face's character in Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Ben Stiller's, Stillers, yeah. When he does that movie, Simple Jack, it's kind of like it's it's on the level of sensitivity. It feels like is that you know what I mean? It's like terrible, um, but it's it's really bad. It's a stinker. But like I gotta watch it I, now. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that John Travolta is like, uh, despite the fact that he's batshit crazy, I guess in real life, um, I I think he's like, I think he's a superb actor. And I think what it is with John Travolta, at least for me, is like, he has what Nicolas Cage has. He has what like a lot of these guys have. Bill Murray has it, in my opinion, too, is that like, and I'm not a big fan of Bill Murray, but you can't deny his charisma. Mm. he's just he just oozes charisma even when he's trying to be serious even when he's being like guarded or like um frantic like he is in blowout which is a very different performance to a lot of his other movies but like he's this he has screen presence like for days oh yeah yeah, yeah. endless screen presence and i think he was obviously helped by the fact that he was a very pretty man when he was younger too he's like you know like an adonis like a very beautiful guy so like i think that helped his career too but like he can sing he can dance He's like, he can move, he moves like, and Tarantino knows that about him. And that, that, that's why you have that great dance sequence with, um, in Pulp Fiction, because there's something very like, he just has that, you know what I mean? He's like, he's kind of like a cat in a way, like the way he moves and he, and he can like, and I think that's why him and Cage together and Face Off is just like, <laughs> it's, it's just the perfect casting for that movie. Yeah. Could you imagine Face Off? With two different actors, no, it just wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean that that movie was perfect for both of them. Yeah, it's like quintessential. Mm-hmm. So, but we're not talking about Face Off, unfortunately, today. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're talking about Blowout. So, uh, like I said, not a huge hit, but right, widely regarded by most people is De Palma's best movie. Widely regarded by most people as um, in De Palma, widely regarded by most people who like movies is one of the greatest directors of all time. Yeah. Um, so let me throw it to you guys then. You, uh, Zach, I'm going to start with you. Obviously, of De Palma's catalog of movies, like, do you have a particular fav- favorite, like, of De Palma's work? And is it's a Palma director that you've you've always like admired or liked? Is he somebody that you've been like, oh, it's a De Palma movie, it's going to be good? Um, so I'm one of those folks that I love movies. The movies, the actors. I don't really pay attention to directors that much. But then when I go back, at, you know, with this podcast, you know, we're talking about Brian De Palma. I'm looking at all his movies. I've seen almost all of them. I mean, Carrie, Scarface, Untouchables. Untouchables is probably going to be my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, I love uh, Kevin Costner, Sean Connery opposite each other. It's just really good. But yeah, I mean, I just didn't realize how many he had done. Um, I'm not, like I said, too keen on like director's names and their filmographies and stuff like that. But, you know, looking up through his stuff, even, uh, did he do Mission to Mars or is that Mission Impossible the only one? I think I was looking up some weird filmography. Yeah, who did Mission to Mars? I think that was De Palma, wasn't I, that's, it? I thought maybe I recalled it, but I was like, really? Did he really do that? I'm going to look it up right now while you're talking. Zach, I think he did. Uh, let's have a look. De Palma, filmography. 
Um, but yeah, Mission to Mars 2000 in Mission to Mars. That was Gary I get Sinise. that confused. Yeah, that's right. I get that confused with Red Planet. Yeah, came out around the same time with mm-hmm. Val Kilmer. Yeah, Don Kilmer. Cheadle. Yeah. That's right. Mission Mission to Mars has Don Cheadle in it. Um, so yeah, I uh, I'm definitely familiar with his work now. Um, and I've seen a lot of it. So I've yet to find one of his movies that I didn't like. Um, I do like Casualties of War a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great movie. Um, Eric, how about you? Um, yeah, I'm glad you said Casualties of War because I think that's one that's super underrated. Um, as far as his earlier stuff, I I really like Carrie a lot. Um, I like Scarface. I mean, who doesn't like Scarface? It gave us the Al Pacino that we all know, know and love today. So <laughs> it seemed like a Pacino was kind of a, a normal person, like, before all that. And then after, it's <laughs> like he became this living embodiment of Al Pacino. So, um yeah. Uh, Untouchables. I remember seeing that in theaters and just being blown away. Uh, I've only seen Snake Eyes once, I think. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That was all a one shot. Um, I so I don't think it's entirely. I think there's um, no there's there's a big section of that movie, and I think it's the beginning section. Okay. Um, before they lock down the um the boxing ring or where it is a casino, whatever yeah. it is. I think there's there's a specific really really long unbroken shot on that, but I don't think the whole movie is. Oh, okay. Well, like I said, I would only seen it once, but I kind of remember that that was the kind of gimmick of it, um, or I, that's what I remember hearing. Um, but like I I would say, I would say, oh man, as far as like an all time favorite De Palma, I, I'm just gonna. I'm going to keep it real and say Scarface. I mean, you have to say Scarface. <laughs> you know, that's that's the one right there. Um, but Casualties of War is, is really, I think is so underrated. Yeah, that's a really good movie. It's, uh, it's a tough watch, but it's really good. Um, really good performances in Casualties of War too. I think. Um, for me, like for my money, my favorite De Palma movie is and will always be Snake Eyes. Always. Um, just because I think it's like, it's fucking it's righteous you know what i mean like i love cage cage is like dialed to like 13 in that like full over the top cage um then you also have like just the technicality of that movie is just like fucking out of control um now it's difficult talking about brian de palma being that i'm not like if i i've never studied film or the act of making film so like there's a lot of things that really impress me about brian de palma and I don't know exactly how to verbalize it because I don't know the technicality behind it or like the technical mm. terms for what he's actually doing. But in terms of like somebody who who considers himself like um, a visual person first and foremost, like I think De Palma is like the king of like moving a fucking camera around. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in my opinion of all the directors that I've seen. Um, and like, so yeah, favorite for fun level, Snake Eyes. I think Untouchables is i've seen almost all of it i would say i've seen 80 percent of his filmography um for me snake eyes most favorite most fun untouchables i think is i'm tied between this and blowout being his uh untouchables and blowout being his two two best movies mm-hmm. i think the first mission impossible is fucking sublime too i'm swearing a lot in this episode uh, <laughs> i think um i think the first mission impossible is amazing like i love that movie and i i it's such a fond memories of seeing that in the movie theater like just the whole set piece when he falls down and he's like hanging um there's so much like interesting shit going on in that movie um 
I know a lot of people would probably argue that some of the more recent Mission Impossibles are better because of, you know what I mean, like the action or whatever. But like for me, I just feel in terms of it feeling like a pulpy spy thriller, the first one is like tonally exactly what I wanted it to be. Mm. Um, so good. But like, he's just so good. He's just so good. Like um, even movies, I think when he's not really firing very, very strong. The Black like, Dahlia's um, got some yeah. good camera work to it. I think Black Dahlia is an interesting movie. I think Domino with Keira Knightley is a pretty good movie. I love that movie. And I know a lot of people probably think it's trash, but I like it. No. Um, And I I think that's what's kind of fun about Brian De Palma too, is he's he's kind of exploitative in a way. He's he's, kind of like a, he's almost like a sleaze filmmaker. He's kind of like, he's like this weird melding if you took somebody who's like kind of trashy and sleazy, um, but then somebody who's like superbly talented and gifted and technical and you combine those two things so it's like what if somebody made the greatest trashiest movie of all time you know what i mean he's like (laughs) really good at that and i think like because of that that's what makes him exciting and i understand why guys like tarantino probably gravitate towards him because of like you are basically in some of his movies but like particularly uh body double or dress to kill Mm mm-hmm they're like they are exploit exploitation movies, pretty much. Pretty much, uh, but they yeah, just, yeah. but they're just done with such like confidence and such like bravura, or however you pronounce that yeah. word. Um, so like, yeah, I think that's pretty much where I would like rate his movies. But yeah, so like that really covers him and covers Travolta, and that really they're the main two people we need to speak about talking about the movie. So I'm going to throw this over to you, Zach, first because oh, no. I know that Eric and I have seen this movie already. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you you had not seen Blowout, correct? I, I, I had not heard of it, actually. Okay, so I'm very interested to get your take on it. So um, we'll do spoilers free in this portion. I, I feel like it doesn't matter about spoilers because the movie's like 40 years old, but whatever. We'll do spoilers free in this portion, uh, talk about what we like, and then we'll get into the second half. We'll do, we'll do our usual spoiler shit. So yeah, Zach, what did you think? All right, so like I just said, you know, I didn't see a trailer, didn't see a preview, didn't really know anything about it until I don't know if it was Eric or you that had mentioned it to me um, that it was a Brian De Palma and early Travolta movie. Uh, so I thought, you know, it'd be all right, I guess. Um, read the premise about him being a audio engineer or, you know, effects guy for movies. Uh, and just the premise alone of that, you know, what he witnesses uh, at the bridge. So, yeah, going into it, I was a little apprehensive because uh, I'm not biased towards late '70s, early '80s looking movies, but you know, it's just I didn't gr- I didn't grow up watching that era of movies. So to me, sometimes those movies look low budget when really it probably weren't. That's just how my eyes take it. Uh, different style of acting than what I grew up in the mid to late '90s, stuff like that. But after watching it, this movie was really really good. Um, I will say the first two minutes, I thought it was going to be some trashy uh, slasher <laughs> flick. <laughs> um, but, but once it gets into the actual movie, uh, where it starts with John Travolta, um, it had me locked in. It was it was a really, really good, thrilling political cover-up type of conspiracy movie. Um, but for me, the, the parts that I found the most interesting that kept me in it um, was all the recording devices and the technical stuff that John Travolta's Jack character had to do. Because it feels like, at, even at the very beginning of the movie, from when he, you know, the blowout stuff, you know, that recorder is like a character in its own. Like, he's either constantly um, recording with it, he's spooling it, reeling it. It showed me, like, this how much effort and just time it takes to uh, 
do all that cutting and editing and putting audio in because, you know, later on the movie, the franticness happens where, you know, as the story starts progressing and more thrilling and more, you know, get up and go, as does, you know, his involvement with the recording device and the different reels and him having to do uh, reel feed and all this stuff. So, like, for me, that gave it kind of a an interesting, you know, addition to it being just like a murder, kind of like a political uh, conspiracy movie. Um, I thought I, the cast was great. I didn't realize that was Dennis Franz till maybe about three fourths of the way until my first. I watched it twice, by the way. Um, I didn't realize that was him as Manny. He was so good as the sleazy uh, photographer. Um, I thought Sally was all right. Again, I didn't know another character. I didn't know that was John Lithgow at first as Burks. He was just exceptional. I he was creepy, nefarious. Um, you know, methodical as his character. Um, so after watching it, you know, I did. I watched it again the next day. Um, Travolta was so good. He just, he's, if for being that young and he's only been in a couple movies up until that point, it's just natural. Like every line comes, he's just a very affable person on camera, whether it's dramatic uh, or just like the role he's playing now. I thought he just kind of made the movie a lot smoother and like I said, really good, thrilling stuff. Uh, the ending, I mean, know we'll talk about it later, but yeah, the ending was what it was. And I thought it was a great ending, but, you know, emotionally, not what I, what I was expecting. So, yeah, love the movie. Definitely uh, recommend this one for sure. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm so pleased you liked it. I thought you were going to like it. I, I knew that I like I was like, you can't not like Blowout. Um, Eric, how about you? Um, it, yeah, it, it was, it was a rewatch and it was, uh, I would say it was a long time in between. Um, I couldn't even tell you the, probably the first time I saw it, it was years and years and years ago. So I, I'm glad I got to revisit it and I'm glad I got, to, I, I, I have it on a criterion. So I always like it when I get to crack those open and kind of look into like, you know, their remastering, uh, versions of it and and the things that they do to improve it um i always really enjoy that uh it's it's super interesting to kind of watch like like zach said that first couple minutes i totally forgot about all that like it that it was about you know uh kind of a schlocky horror exploitation director and that he worked for him and and uh, that whole relationship right there um Two two things that really kind of shined in this movie. One was kind of Travolta's almost natural way that he acted in every scene. It just seemed like he was above and beyond everybody else who was who was uh, in the movie. And then also John Lithgow, who was also um, kind of like on par with with his level as well. Really kind of um, bought into that character. Um, where everybody else almost is kind of a, a a caricature of of that time, meaning like Franz was this uber sleazy like a photography guy. De- Debbie Allen as uh, Sally was this like over the top a New York. Uh, a, like uh streetwalker street yeah yeah <laughs> i guess like if that's what she was like that's just what she had to do do to survive but she also was like a makeup artist but just like that that 
over the top accent that she had, um, the the police uh, person that he was talking to, just like these. It's like all, all these uh, actors like came from a certain school of a uh, of performance, and they brought that to this time where it seemed like Travolta and Lithgow were really beyond that point and, and had kind of a different style, which I really kind of appreciated really kind of a natural uh, vibe to it. Um, I, I like the, um, the themes of the movie, which I found was super interesting because say this is um, early eighties. So we're uh, coming off of, uh, not not too far from like the 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 JFK assassination. You you have Vietnam ending probably seven years before that. You know six seven years before that. So there's always still this heavy suspicion of government that's happening. Um, so they're playing with those themes. Um, they're playing with like the the themes of corruption. Oh, I thought was like super interesting. One of the things I really enjoyed was it, was it seemed like uh, De Palma was really kind of paying homage to Hitchcock in a way, because you had just the way that he was filming certain things and the colors he would use and the colors he would bounce off d- different people and the lighting. Um, it really kind of gave me that. Um, if you've seen Vertigo. Uh, Hitchcock really played with color a lot in Vertigo, and I and I think um, um, De Palma and his camera and his camera people really kind of honed in on that, and I, I really appreciated it when when they were going through everything, and you would get these these really kind of uh, heavy reds and blues and things that were popping uh, around the city, and and really kind of using the the light to tell a story as well. So. We'll get into the ending and and how everything kind of um, happens, and you get that kind of third act uh, like action. <laughs> Maybe we'll get into that later, but but that whole that whole car scene, that car chase, you know, um, at the towards the end was just like so over the top, like eighties action shenanigans. Uh, and I guess that would, that was fine for the time, but uh, I I don't know I don't remember when um, French Connection came out, but it seemed that the eighty two seventy two. Oh no, I was just thinking, isn't French Connection two the one with the car chase? I I, I, I don't remember. One? I don't I don't remember if it was French Connection or French Connection two, but but it seemed like everybody was trying to compete with that that Frankenheimer like driving and uh, like barreling down the 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 streets of New York and like almost missing all these people. Although this took place, I believe, in Philadelphia, um, but it was kind of that same vibe, you know, where everybody was was trying to kind of remake that kind of that intense car scene there. Um, but it's super fun, super fun. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And it was, it was nice to, I always enjoy like seeing all like movies of that time because I like, um, that's how I, I always kind of imagine New York being like, like completely like sleazy, broken down, tore down city that people just kind of found a way to live in. And, and I'm always, I always really enjoy the, those types of movies from that time, just in that setting is, is, is great. 
Well, the French Connection, uh, 1971. 71, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you could see, like, that, like, a lot of people being influenced post French. And I've seen both French Connection 1 and 2, but I haven't seen them for so long. Yeah. That in my head now, I'm like, was it French Connection 2 that had the better car chase? Or was it French? I I can't remember. Yeah, it's like like French Connection, and then you you have Bullet with Steve McQueen. It was just kind of the same. You know, everybody was trying to do that car scene, you know, so... Well, speaking of that car scene, like what, before I get into what I thought about the movie, which is kind of obvious what I thought about the movie, but um, that when I was watching that car chase, you know what it me a lot of, hmm. um, in a way, in terms of like how like tonally weird it is to be in the movie is um, the car chase in the Blues Brothers because yeah. it's a, it's just that kind of like what like yeah. what are, what are we doing <laughs> it's and so like, it, it's so surreal and like there's yeah. no possible way like 100 people weren't injured in this yeah no yeah for real. yeah that's what i as i was thinking but i was watching it i was like especially because of the blues brothers car chase and this car chase involving so many people that i was like i was like this is just batshit crazy like what are they doing <laughs> uh, and apparently it's like some interesting side side notes from what you guys were saying too so the there was a lot of like so nancy allen who is Brian De Palma's wife in real life? Um, oh, she. It was Nancy uh, Allen. I think I said Debbie Allen. <laughs> oh yeah, whatever. Um, it, well, what's funny is, is she? You know, the beginning. Not a spoiler, but there's a underwater car scene. Shall I say in the beginning of the movie? Yeah. She was actually under the water, and so was John Travolta. Like they, they didn't have stunt doubles. It looked like it like, was real. Yeah, and apparently, like, they were worried they were like, shit, she might die. And she's apparently, like, really claustrophobic in real life. So there was a lot of stuff done in this movie, which is very, like, um, you're almost guerrilla style, yeah, I guess, in yeah. a way. Like, um, like without, like, nowadays, they wouldn't get away with doing any of that shit. You know what I mean? But, um, yeah, that car chase scene is funny. Like, so for me, my opinion on Blau, and again, I'm going to preface what I'm saying, preface what I'm saying by I'm not a film student and, like, I've never made a film in my life. So, forgive me if i don't understand so you know what i love about this movie is you can like you can watch the whole movie and the camera is either on a crane it's on the ground it's on a dolly it's getting pushed around it's on the front of a car it is like the camera is just everywhere like everywhere and like it is so fun to watch and the, the one thing that kept coming to mind when i was watching this again specifically trying to be like critical when i was watching it is you know when like graphic novels are comic books, so it, it has its own visual medium. It's its own way of communicating a story. Yeah. So in a comic book, it's very specific. So you have panel to panel. But because over time with graphic novels being like an expansion on comic books, um, or funny papers or whatever they were, um, they've found more and more interesting ways to communicate via that medium. So like sometimes you'll have panels that you don't have a panel and like you'll have full pages and you have pages where it's bubbles. And you know what I mean? Like they'll do like really creative shit like that. Mm-hmm. That's what I think about this movie. When I watch this movie, like all I can think about is is like, why is everything so boring when it's filmed right now? Like, why, why, why is this essentially a movie that like it does have a plot? It's not very plot heavy, and I think the weakest aspects of the movie are some of the writing with the movie, and uh, some of the performances. I think are pretty weak, despite Travolta being like amazing in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think Nancy Allen, to me, for me, Nancy Allen, when I'm watching, I'm like. Like they would just not write a woman like that anymore. No, like that no, would just no, not no. be a character that exists anymore. <laughs> like because she is all so comic book and cartoonishly like a ditzy blonde airhead that it's like it's it's borderline like uncomfortable. Yeah. In the way she speaks, I'm kind of like the the it's like kind of disrespectful to her character parts. I think in in a way the way she's portrayed, and then um 
so beside that but like with that being said the movie's main strength is the fact that like dude there's some shots in this movie right out the bat there's like when john travolta um ends up in the hospital after the the it's not a spoiler to say there's a car crash or whatever and he goes in, he goes into a hospital after a rescue attempt the scenes like right away like where the camera's in and like there's almost like a recurring theme in this movie where there's like a scene within a scene that's why mm-hmm. i can't wait so to talk like, about yes yeah yeah like the, and he does that a lot and he does it all the way through and there's like there's like a person within something within the movie so there's people in a sound booth within the movie and the way the camera pulls out from the people in the sound booth then there's john travolta in the waiting room of the hospital and then there's all the action that's taking place directly behind him mm-hmm. which the camera which most people wouldn't even f- like focus on but like there's like a whole scene going on outside with the cops and the paramedics. Yeah. And it's like everything, everything to do where the camera's placed in regard. And like, so like you have all of this, these scenes where these, these characters who are being separated between two different environments, like in the train station, he does that crazy cool shot where you see the trains in the train station and he pulls back the camera and it goes into the waiting room in the lobby, mm-hmm. which is like a room within a room. Then the bar within the train station, which is a room within a room. And then it's like, there's a lot of that going on throughout the whole movie. There's later on in the scene after, in the movie, after the car chase scene, Travolta is put inside of an ambulance and then we see him but when we see him, we see him from outside of the the ambulance. So like everything that he's doing, we're seeing through the window, just like we're seeing through the window at the beginning of the movie in Coed Frenzy, when they're filming that, um, the schlock movie, which is yeah. just an amazing scene because you have all these actors carrying on inside of this building. It's just, it's just like, it's like mind boggling, like the technicality of like, every, there's not a second of this movie that is wasted and not thought out yeah. visually. Like visually it is, I would argue, in my opinion, I think it's probably the prettiest movie ever made, in my opinion, like in terms of like just thought and like, and what I mean by referencing comic books and graphic novels when I'm saying this is that like, I feel like he's he's using film as a medium to tell a story, but he's not telling a, he's telling a visual story in which I feel is like kind of weirdly lost in films nowadays because films are almost more interested in performance and um like performance and writing and so on and so forth as opposed to like how can we tell this story visually you know what i mean like how can i do something like why like i'm gonna put this camera here and why am i gonna put here and what's this gonna you know what i mean like the use of colors eric like you said the red and the blue which is a theme that runs throughout the movie so and it's funny that you said Hitchcock because you know what it reminded me a lot of is Suspiria and mm. like Argento. And I and I guess De Palma's a big uh, Giallo fan. He's a big like Italian slasher film fan, Kel Surprise. Yeah. Um, so I was getting huge Argento vibes and like the difference I think between De Palma and Dario Argento is I think De Palma's like a way better filmmaker. Um, but like the I love the use of color and I like the fact that there's uh, the red scenes always indicate danger when something dangerous is going to happen. The blue scenes are always where Travolta is like um, thinking or he's like lost or he's confused or he's like you know what I mean mm-hmm. like in the way he's using that color and I guess like the way he's just lighting everything like so aggressively yeah. and it's like it's just it's amazing and what's interesting too Eric is not to do fact checking on you again but it's Philadelphia not New York and what's interesting about Philadelphia is it's Brian De Palma's hometown mm-hmm. and what I think is interesting about that is is the movie it's almost as if he grew up in a city and he was like mentally taking notes of that's a cool location that's a cool location that could be a cool place to put a shot that could be a cool place to have a camera because there's a lot of stuff where you're watching like how did he just pick like the coolest places to do these like you know what I mean like yeah. stumble across like the most visually interesting areas and neighborhoods in which to like film this um 
so for me, like, I think the movie is like a technical marvel in a way that I can't understand. And I love that I can't understand it. And I, I always go back to this on movies last night when we talked about movies. Like for me, like, I want to see it. I want to see a film. I don't like, it's cool. Like I want all of it to be good in which is, I think this is where the, some of the weaknesses in this movie are, is I think the script at parts, I think the, the central narrative of like the, the plot never really gets resolved in a way that like, it's that you never get too much information, which is good because they do keep a lot of stuff. Like it's like, it's almost as if here's the story, but it's, we don't focus on it too much. Don't worry yeah, about the yeah, conspiracy yeah. too yeah. much yes. because yes. we don't want to, we don't want to bog the film down with that shit. The performances, like Dennis Franz is great in it. All Lithgow is amazing in it. Um, like great casting for him to play against type. You know what I mean? I guess maybe he's at that period in time. I'm not too familiar with John Lithgow's earlier movies. I think the first movie I saw him in when I was a kid was Bigfoot and Henderson. Harry and Henderson. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think great casting of Lithgow and I think he's very good. He's really, he's a really good bad guy in things. Like, I think he's just like a, he's got that face for it where he's got that kind of like cherubic face, but he's like kind of like really creepy as fuck. Um, So I think he's excellent in it. Travolta is like stellar in it from top, like start to finish. And I was going to mirror what you said, Zach, too, is what I love about this movie too, is I love the technicality of the movie. So it's like him using the old equipment uh, because he's a sound man. And I guess his sound company's called personal effects which i think is a pretty fun name for his mm-hmm. um little sound company <laughs> i love the fact that he's um working for that sleazy filmmaker like the beginning of the movie you get a, a brief tour like the camera goes through uh the offices of the, the the movie house and they have all these beautiful exploitation posters on the wall yeah that i kept pos- i kept posing the, like pausing the movie and i'd look up the poster and they're all real posters, like obviously they're all real movies, and like which is super cool. And some of those posters are like thousands of dollars now. And I'm like, that's a thing I'm into right now is like vintage <laughs> movie posters. So I think that was really cool. So I like the whole sleazy aspect of it too. Um, and like the setting, I think is perfect. That period of time's perfect. And I like to see old cities. I like to see cities where it's like a dirty, filthy city. And before, I'm just rambling because I fucking love the movie so much. But you know what else I'm going to talk about? I think it's really cool before we move on. And I'm going to cut myself off. But um, I really like that the apartments that everybody lives in are like real people's apartments. Like it's it's not like a, like John Travolta's apartment is sick. It's like super cool. And he's got like his old stereo setup. He's got a TV, but it's got the back of the TV missing. And he has like stereo speakers up on oh, his wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has yeah. this weird like mezzanine floor in his apartment. That's like, I'm like the whole time I watch him, I'm like, God, I love to live there. It's so cool. <laughs> but not in a way that it's like, not in a way that it's like, this is a ridiculous apartment. Like this waitress who lives in a mansion, you know, like yeah, typical yeah, Hollywood yeah. bullshit. It's just like, it looks like some nerdy guy lives there yeah. and he's collected nerdy things. It looks like somewhere where his character would live. Nancy Allen's apartment looks like somewhere where she would live. Dennis Franz's apartment, oh, yeah. which oh, is basically yeah. just a shoebox, <laughs> is exactly where somebody like that would live. Like a total sleazeball alcoholic. Uh, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. And like, it's because of the period of time that like, I just think it's, it's like, everything to me like visually aesthetically is like beautiful in that period of time because i like i love the grime and the grease oh and, like, yeah. yeah how tr- like the bar and the train station where he pulls nancy allen for a drink before she's about to take off they they sit in that little shitty bar and there's like nudie posters on the wall and like everything is just covered in grime <laughs> throughout this whole movie and i love it i love it so much um yeah and like another thing too as i was thinking as you were saying is like the red and the blue color palette for the movie is interesting because 
the uh, American flag is in the, the movie a lot, which is obviously red, white, and blue. And then also that's paralleled with the whole like Liberty Day, Liberty Bell uh, thing. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting too, because if you think about red and blue too, that's also a Republican Democrat. And it's also about like a, a political... Um, assassination so to speak so like it's interesting too like the color choices the, the it runs you could run that into so many different things yeah you know what i mean yeah um which i think is really clever um i would probably give the movie a 10 out of 10 if i'm being honest i, mean, I think it's it, it, super it's it's definitely it's definitely one of a kind um for it's they don't make it's interesting that you say this like you want to watch a film they don't make movies like this anymore they couldn't make movies like this anymore like if someone was like oh we're gonna remake blowout there would be so much that would be cut out of this just just current climate alone that you you could not oh, yeah. remake this movie um and that's what i love about those kind of late 70s early 80s type movies of that time they're they're like super interesting to look at it and like you said it's not so much about like plot driven or um heavy character driven situations it's all about like technically what what are you visually showing to us what am i trying to it's it's very kind of old school in that way and it's how all those guys kind of came up and how they learned and and how they they learned to kind of tell the story too um yeah i mean that it it's definitely it's anybody who's listening to this who hasn't seen it i would i would hope that you kind of would give it a chance even though it's an older movie that there's there's a lot of like really interesting things going on with it and happening yeah i agree with that for uh for those yeah. of us that don't you know don't watch a lot of the <laughs> older stuff uh yeah i definitely uh, i concur it's uh 10 out of 10. I mean, I paid, I'd pay money for it in theaters. You know, I'd, I've seen it twice now. So yeah, I'd go with y'all. Yeah. It, it like, I'll, I'll just a few more things because I'm like chomping at the bit. I've got like, <laughs> I've got so much to say, but like interesting too. Like, yeah, I just think that like, I don't know if many people have the chops to make something like this nowadays. Like, I don't, I don't know if many know. people have yeah. like the, like, because I feel like what's interesting about this movie and what's interesting about this movie being made using old technology and about a guy who is making, so he's, he's a, he's a sound engineer, but the way he was tracking sound. So the equipment that he's using now is all so obsolete. The, he takes, um, film stock to get developed obsolete, yeah. um, movie houses, obsolete, uh, cameras like that obsolete uh 16 millimeter 35 millimeter film not used pretty much at all yeah with the, with the exception of certain people so like he's having a to crack a case or solve a, a puzzle using limitations of the equipment that he has right so he's like he's like well I, how can i rewind this tape and i've got to make a note on here and i've got to line these two bits of tape up to me you know yeah. everything now is digital so you like you remove all of that from it but what's interesting is there's a parallel between that and the way that De Palma and these guys, it's not just De Palma, obviously, is, I don't know who his director of photography is, but he's amazing. But like, they're using limitations of equipment too, at the same time. So like, the movie's about a guy who's using equipment that's obsolete, and it's made by a filmmaker and a bunch of artists who are using technology that is now obsolete and that also had like significant limitations so like the limitations in terms of like we have to like if we want to put a camera in the sky we don't have a drone we got to get a fucking crane or, up in the sky or we got to schedule a helicopter, a helicopter. Yeah. yeah like if i want to do like tracking shots like somebody's got to be running with this shit or like if i'm gonna like 
do these like split diopter shots or whatever they're called where it's like i have to like cut the film and i have to like you know what i mean like i don't even know how he did it but because of those limitations i feel like and they were like trying to figure out and he De Palma's not the only person that did this. Obviously, Hitchcock and like Orson Welles and all of these guys, trailblazers in terms of like using technology. You know what I mean? But like, I think that because of the limit limitations inherent in the technology at the time when this movie was made, you have people who are being like extremely creative to get around this, and it became like, it's like a game for them. It's like I'm the master of manipulating what I have to make something super interesting. And I feel like nowadays you can do apparently pretty good cgi on a on a macbook pro right you can film 4k 60 frames a second on your iphone that's in your pocket right oh, and yeah. it's steady cam and everything so theoretically i have a full production suite in my pocket oh yeah theoretically yeah. in terms of technology but because of that it seems like nobody's interested in doing anything creative <laughs> like everybody's just doing like the bare minimum it seems like i know that's not 100 true but like you have really good filmmakers nowadays like uh i Julia Decono, who did Titan and all of those movies, really, really good, really, really good thematic, but visually not that amazing. Yeah, like, I mean, if you're comparing it to this, you know, um, I I found it like super interesting that they didn't that they basically had to create a Steadicam to to for some of these shots, like that shot in the beginning. I, I watched that that little supplemental video that we had talked about, Scott, and like in the beginning, they were talking, him and his photographer were talking about creating, or, or like someone that they knew had created some sort of steady cam to, to make that shot. And it, it's crazy to think that they had to like create something that is so readily available today to make certain shots work, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, I'm cutting myself off now. We're <laughs> going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk spoilers for Blowout from 1981. So, yes, we're giving you a warning. We're not going to spoil anything. See you after the break. And we're back. Thanks for sticking around. So we're going to talk spoilers for Blowout. We'll get into the plot and the, like the nitty gritty of the plot and what, what works and what doesn't work. Um, what makes sense? What doesn't make sense? So I'm going to take a breather for a little while. So who wants to go first? Anybody got anything like they want to talk about with the plot? Um, as far as the, the plot, I've, I've found it super interesting. And I think I, I touched on it a little bit in my initial kind of um, response to it. Uh I thought it was interesting that they wanted to tackle a kind of political uh, narrative for the time because every everything, um, and and I'm not sure maybe, maybe movies at that time because you know I, there was so many and I and I haven't kind of I didn't watch like a bunch of movies around the same time period but but it almost seemed like. There were, it was the beginning of mistrust with the with the government because of everything that had had happened before. So, I I think you, if you go back and really look at it, you would find um, 
a lot of movies kind of similar to this, where there's this this distrust of of what's happening in the country. So that that's it's very it's very interesting to kind of watch um, a narrative like that take place at the at that time. Um, as far as everything else, I thought it was interesting the perspective that we that we got to see. I, I've never seen another movie like this where it's like the the main protagonist has this type of job or um, as as a sound engineer um, and how he kind of investigates or or becomes kind of a detective in the in everything that's going on and then using like his ability to solve everything so um i thought that was a really interesting choice um i haven't seen like i said i haven't seen anything since that i can think of off the top of my head that's been almost similar uh in that um i mean john lithgow as the killer was just was just great it, it was it was it was really great he was really kind of uh, i love how he thought about every like every kind of situation and option and like you could tell he was highly trained you don't get a lot of backstory on him you another thing you can assume he was like a government like kind of black ops type of person but they don't you don't get into it at all sort of thing um I thought I thought one thing was kind of a bit in like implausible where where he had that kind of garrote on his watch, right? Oh yeah. So and, and he wraps it when he goes when he's doing like he's he's basically he's he's killing these women to cover up a, a the crime of the. Uh, uh, the crime that he had committed before about the, the assassination uh, that he pulled off in the beginning. So he's just, he's just trying to, to make everybody kind of disappear who was uh, involved in that situation, but he's masking it with this like serial killer type uh, narrative going on in the city. Um, but he does this thing where he like, he tricks a prostitute to come into the bathroom or meet him there. And he comes. He goes up into the stall and like pulls that around, pulls that garrote around out of his watch, and then wraps it around his fingers. And then like you see the bottom where he wraps it around her neck and then lifts her up, and you only see her feet kind of dangling. And I'm thinking to myself, that right there will cut his fingers clean off <laughs> because it's like it's like a razor wire almost so thin that that it would be impossible to hold that much weight up. And if it was, it would just snap his fingers clean off. So, I mean, that's like, you know, I mean, I, I get kind of the, uh, the, the reasoning why they did that or kind of the, you know, how to make everything thrilling, but it's also kind of like, you know, it, it just, if they would have thought a little bit more about kind of the weapons of choice of that, uh, in that situation, um, the the car the car uh, scene at the the last third of the movie is just so uh, crazy ridiculous that it's almost it almost comes off as a completely different movie in a way because obviously you could tell it's like green screened and or uh, whatever the technology was for the day and. Um, how everybody's kind of diving away as he's uh as as he's driving through 
the the parade rally and stuff, stuff like that is just a little bit too ridiculous and um and he, how he crashes and everybody's like oh you okay like why why yeah. weren't cops yeah. like just on the scene like <laughs> like tackling that guy right away he just like gets out and starts running through the crowd you know like no one's looking for this crazy guy who almost plowed through everyone um that scene plays very different now in 2022 it really does it would have done it really you know, does it, yeah yeah, yeah. In, in wake of like people actively using weapons yeah for, cars yeah, yeah car, cars is what like, yeah, yeah. 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 Causes weapons. um but i mean i think if you go back and watch movies at the time you would probably see 10 different scenes exactly like that um so i think we're all pretty satisfied with that ending um i, I like yeah, I mean, it's it's a bummer ending, you know? I mean, and like I said, if you were going to remake it today, everyone would everyone would live except Bert. You know, he would, he would get killed at the end, uh, Lithgow's character. Um, Especially for, like, a major, major, like, release movie like that. Like, it, I mean, we, we forget, like, given the time, like, this is a, a, a big-budget movie. Yeah. And like I said, the yeah. same budget as Raiders of the Lost Ark. So this isn't like, this is like a mainstream cinema movie mm-hmm. um, for the ending to be so dark. Zach, what were you, um, I know you said you had some things to talk about like earlier on. Uh, what did you want to get to? Well, I mean, the first thing that, you know, a couple things I wanted to say was, you know, I'm not, like I said earlier, I'm not a big technical guy. I don't know, you know, camera shots that well, I think, but, the first things I noticed, like camera wise, was he has this really cool thing where he does the uh, split screen shot. Split screens, where, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the left side is like a regular death perception, but that right screen is magnified and almost like a 3D effect. Like he yeah. does it with the newscast from the television. He does it with the, that mm-hmm. owl scene at the beginning is so good. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. when, when he's recording, that owl's right up in your face on the right side. But the cameras, you get like, a voyeuristic feel i i thought those were really really cool um at first you know i thought it was kind of shot like a regular movie but then as you're watching it quickly like you said he's got different tricks that he's using to get these weird angles and stuff like that um but i thought to me that was like that's what got me into it first was like oh he's got really really interesting take on how he shoots his films and the the fact that he started doing it throughout the movie was very like just a calling card kind of thing. And I like that when I can notice that in either actors or directors that they have like a certain thing that they do where you can say, Hey, that's a Brian De Palma movie. So, yeah, I think he, uh, he does that kind of technique in a handful of his movies. I mean, if you watch, um, if you watch sisters at all, I think the entire movie is shot like that split screen. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, Snake eyes is very, um, trick heavy too. Um, like for his later movies that movie is like all tricks snake eyes um it's all like visually like i'm gonna say gimmicky but it's like very like you know what i mean it's just signature you know yeah signature well you know another visually cool shot was when he is in the motel with sally and he's re-listening to the car crash he recorded but he's got this cool thing where he's using his pencil yeah to kind of mimic it and kind of recreate it in his head that was just, it was just a very entertaining, very cool scene that he was using uh, as like his wand, his eye, you know, his microphone. 
Yeah, I love that too, Zach. It's funny you mentioned that. I love that scene too because he's like retracing his steps and like when as he's listening, he's like, "Oh yeah." So I had the microphone pointed this way, and the couple were there, and then I've got the owl hooting. And I've got yeah, it was well, very clever how he did that. And then with the sounds, you get to hear. I didn't I didn't notice it until the second time I watched it, but you know he hears the bullfrog and he hears that zip zip. zip. It's John Lithgow's character with the watch thing. He's pulling yeah. that little thing up and up, you know, pulling it out, pulling it out, and that's what's making yeah. that zip zip sound i didn't notice that till the second time i watched it that was pretty cool well speaking about the plot like in general so it, it's more or less straightforward so you have sound guy gets tasked with early on like he's making a schlock horror movie in the like the guy the director of the movie is like hey you're using a really bad that wind sound that you've been using in this horror movie scene it's the same wind sound that we've had forever he's like can you get me a better wind sound and then he goes the actress who's doing the scream too she can't scream because one of the actresses gets murdered <laughs> in co-ed slumber party whatever it is and co-ed frenzy and her scream isn't very effective it's actually terrible it's so he's like uh get me a better scream and get me some better wind so that night he goes out and he's like well I guess what a lot of sound guys did at that time was he's capturing sounds in nature. You know what I mean? They probably still do it, I, I should imagine, um, which is really cool. He's using that really cool microphone. Next thing you know, he witnesses a car, lose control. It seems like the tire pops, uh, lose control, goes into the lake. So he's like, shit, jumps in the lake, tries to rescue who's inside, couldn't get everybody out, but he manages to get Nancy Allen's character out. Uh, Sally, you said? Yeah, Sally. Get, get Sally out. And, and thankfully, she's still alive. They go to the hospital. Turns out the guy driving was a governor. Governor. Was a governor. Something. I forgot his name. Yeah. And then he was basically the people's choice for the next election. He was pretty much going to be the golden boy. You know, very much a JFK type. You know what I mean? Like, can do no wrong. Like, um, apple of everybody's eye. Um, and then, it, as it turns out, the conspiracy, therefore, is that they hired Dennis Franz who is a photographer who has a side business where he extorts wealthy people, businessmen, by using Nancy Allen as like a plant to expose herself next to them, take photographs of it and use it to blackmail them. So then they hire him and his services to do the same thing with the um, the governor. But now I believe the intention, they tell him that the intention was just a blackmail, but they have another intention is that they actually want to, want to kill him and they want to use nancy allen is like you know what i mean like they were like well actually they don't technically use it as a scapegoat but in other words it's basically like a classic kill the future president kind of like conspiracy yeah. theory yeah. so so really when i was watching it what was interesting is when john lithgow starts coming into it and his character comes into it part of me when he's doing the murder so he's obviously doing these murders to mask the fact by killing all of these women who look like um, Sally, he's basically having a cover story. So when Sally does get killed, everybody's like, oh, well, it was the Strangler, whatever they call him, like the Philadelphia Strangler, the Liberty Day Strangler, I think his name is. Um, what I couldn't really understand when I was watching it, I was like, I knew he was doing that, but I was like, well, why does he keep killing all these extra women? Because he kills like, we see him kill at least two. Um, and it seemed, and then I, part of me was like, is he just like also kind of a serial killer? Well, like, he's is a, he also he's a bit of a psychopath. It comes yeah. across like a sexual <laughs> yeah. kind of sociopath. Like at the ending with Sally in the recording, it's like I thought he was like sexually assaulting her before. Yeah, because he's almost getting off on yeah, it. Yeah, that's like, what it fun, that's what it seems like. Which makes his backstory to me pretty interesting because, like Eric said, he's obviously some kind of special forces operative, CIA like hired mm -hmm. killer. But it, I'm guessing he's also just in it because he enjoys doing it. I think which so. I get the vibe yeah. of, For sure. Which makes him even more fun in a way and more sinister because like, you know what I mean? Like he's he's just 
there's an extra level of creepiness to him because of that. He's not a professional. He's also making it kind of personal when he's doing it, which is kind of cool. Um, and still kind of sleazy too. So there was a few things, Eric, where you're talking about. So like the whole deal with his garrote and his like 007 watch yeah, where yeah. it comes out. <laughs> that didn't bother me too much. But the earlier on, we find out that John Travolta was in the army before he got into the sound work. And then he became a sound guy, but he actually, because he was always tinkering with stuff, he became a sound guy, but he was working for the FBI or the police, I think mm-hmm. it was. Yeah. And he was doing like undercover operations. So he was setting up like recording it, like wiretaps and like wire recordings on people. And the guy he was doing it for, this one guy, he was wearing one of his wires and what happened is he started to sweat and then the battery started to arc, which started basically electrifying him. Mm-hmm. So he goes mid-investigation he has to pull over and he's like i've got to get out of the car and he goes to the bathroom and then the mobster who he's with goes in to check on him finds out he's wearing a wire and we we don't see him kill him but we see the after effect where he's hanging from the doorway yeah. <laughs> how did he do that that's a big he was a no big way. mobster man that's a big mobster <laughs> yeah but he was guy but he was a big guy but also it looked like he did it with like um like plastic tape almost it was like and the like wire a, it was, was the wearing. wire yeah. yeah it was oh it was the wire so like he was using the wire but like the guy he killed must have been about 190 pounds. Yeah, he's a short And he was supposed to lift him <laughs> exactly. over that little thing. And it was like, wouldn't it have just been better if he just strangled him with it? And then like he was on the ground. Yeah. yeah. But I know the visual of him hanging is also mirrored later on with the visual of the um, prostitute hanging in the door where she's hanging when you mm-hmm. see her legs kicking out. So I know it's like a, like a cool visual call, but like the time when I'm watching, I'm like, that seems a little silly. And then... Yeah, because that wire is just going to completely snap under the weight. Or the yeah, the <laughs> yeah, top of that way. urinal stall. Yeah. 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 Did you guys see the? Did you guys see the? Was that any funny when he was just sweating in the back of that car? I thought <laughs> yeah. he was going to die right there in the middle of that car. And that's another thing too. Is like, why was he? Swe- I know he's sweating because he was nervous, but he was sweating like he was in a sauna. Uh, he was sweating. <laughs> this is like Philadelphia in October. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, come on, it's not happening. Um, the other scene I thought was a little bit, obviously the car chase, we'll talk about that, but like, yeah, plays differently in 2022, but the whole notion of him, um, barreling down the road and then everybody being like, oh, let's get him out. And then like, somehow he wasn't killed by police on site, which is hilarious. And then he's, everybody's concerned about his safety, yeah. which is hilarious. Cause I think the mob <laughs> would have just killed him. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then secondly, they put him in the ambulance and then he just runs out the ambulance. <laughs> it takes off. <laughs> so in terms of like the plot, like making sense like at the end too is he just forgiven for that did like nobody follow up with him about him barreling through the road is he just like off or did they not catch him afterwards and then like i think i'm guessing not i'm thinking it's it's like okay let's wrap it up sort of thing there's no real consequences that (laughs) run outside of like the story that we're trying to tell you sort of thing like anything goes you know um also, did um, did Nancy Allen's character kill Dennis Franz? You don't know. You don't know if he's just knocked out or. If yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> With the whiskey bottle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I thought that was funny too, because especially when if you look at her when he's like, I guess he's basically going to rape her, and then she's like, she has the bottle, and the way she's holding the bottle. It doesn't look like there's enough force no to velocity. Like swing down. Yeah, no, yeah. she no. kind of just taps him it, with it, and then it breaks. Sugar it glass, just. <laughs> yeah, and then no liquid comes out too. You know, that? No liquid. And then yeah, we don't know if he's dead. Bless him. Um, in, in like that's pretty goofy. So there's there's some things where it's just like it's not really int- concerned about being like, in like 
factually well not not that i'm saying it has to be like super grounded but there's definitely things in it where it's so ungrounded that it kind of like the tonally it's Mm -hmm. a little bit weird yeah like also if while while we're on the subject then when he kills the other lady who looks like nancy allen he's following her through like the sushi the mall he's looking out in the mall he follows out of the mall she's walking around and he grabs that like ice pick from like the fish bar Mm -hmm. and then he follows her around and she's about to get on the bus and then he just starts strangler on the street. Nobody sees him. Nobody. And, yeah. and I'm like, that street's really busy. And it just so happens there's a door in the in the fencing behind him, like an actual door that swings open to a massive drop off. Yeah. And you were, why would they put a door there if there's a huge drop off? <laughs> and then that that was a little bit goofy too. But I, I enjoyed it. It was fun to watch. But like, it was very like, are you kidding me? Yeah, <laughs> it's so like silly. everything that happens. Um, you can't you you kind of just get to the point where you where you're just like forgiving of everything that happens just because you're like okay this is you know it's a movie from the 80s it's like everything was different at that time they're they're telling that they're trying to like tell a story but it's also like they're also telling this like crazy visual technique story um they're telling a story about sound and stuff like that. So everything in it, it's just the idea of it just on paper seems preposterous, but it's just so, it's so much fun. Yeah. Is, is thing. yeah. That's why it's like, yeah. I never, when I, I was a, a first watch for me, I was into it. So like Eric just said, it's forgiving because it was such a good thrill and a good investigative kind of just movie that, yeah, you kind of just, not until after you've watched it and start thinking about it. Yeah, totally. Because we were talking on the break there about um, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, The Conversation with Gene Hackman, which is quite a similar movie, like quite a similar, like plot-wise and like um, the, he's a sound guy too. Um, and then he uncovers it a conspiracy. Um, but what's interesting is, is that movie is played out very hard-boiled, mm-hmm. very straight-faced. Straight, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, so the, the, there's the two different versions of this movie. There's like the De Palma version of this movie where it's like, yeah, I know that, but nobody would do that, but fuck it. Let's make everything red and blue and have some crazy cool shit. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the Coppola version, which is like, yeah. And Gene Hackman's like this boring old balding dude. Who's just solving a crime. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas uh, like the set, the, again, going back to what I said earlier, there's that sleazy exploitative De Palma style where it's like, you know what I mean? Salaciousness. And we've got prostitutes and we've got guys yeah, like glory killing prostitutes. It's and, very kind of pulpy in a way, yeah. like almost yeah. like a noir pulpy type of type of story where the uh, Francis Ford Coppola one was more very, you know, straight laced of its time you know trying to tell a, a very intriguing story um yeah yeah i mean that's that's a that's a really interesting parallel with those two movies yeah totally and i think like um let's talk about the ending because i know you guys both mentioned the ending and we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast how the movie ends on a dour note and then ultimately what happens is which is chilling in a way is that um after John Travolta's in the car accident, um, he's kind of out of service for a little while. We know that Sally's been taken by John Lithgow at the end and he's taken her up and he's basically going to kill her when he gets a second and he can get her alone to kill her. 
It's pretty fun how he gets the tapes from her and he just wraps them up and he just tosses them in the like, scene. No big deal. You know, it's like, just like uh, Luke throwing his lightsaber away in <laughs> The Last Jedi. It's just like, yep, don't need that. And then she's like, oh, he's going to be so pissed at you for yes. this. Like, she's like, like hey, her hey, so, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> hey, hey, mister, that's real bad. And it's like, <laughs> it's so bad. And then, um, but what I think is interesting is, so you got all this goofy shit going on and then... Um, that he ends up killing her. John Travolta doesn't get there in time. John Travolta kills Lithgow, but it's too late. Sally's already strangled. She's dead. And then all he's left with is the souvenir that's on his personal recorder is he, he caught the whole murder. And then basically what happens is because he caught the whole murder, he also caught her death scream, which he willingly uses. He gives up I, I was gonna at the say, end of the movie. I was going to say, why on earth did he use her death scream for that scream. And the only reason that the only kind of explanation I could come up with was because all his tapes, every sound effect that he ever kind of recorded had been erased. Burke had went through and erased everything. That's and that was right. probably yeah. the only recorded, uh, like scream that he had available for like this one job. So he, he might've just been in a desperate like situation where he had to use it sort of sort of thing and then he's just like he's like yeah great scream great and he's like covering up his ears and that ending it could be the last recording of you know he was kind of falling for her, so maybe it was like the yeah. last bit of sound of her that he had left too yeah okay so yeah then let, let's hypothesize on this thing because i have a few theories so it's it's bananas that he uses it right yeah. thematically with the movie it's really cool how the movie starts as somebody wanting to scream and then gets a scream at the end of the movie. Now, on like, if you were to be smarter people than I could probably talk about like the significance of the fact that it could be something to do with like, if you want to create real art, it has to be, you have to like literally put your life and soul into it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the reason why these screams weren't effective is because they weren't truly terrified. In which case this could be something to do with like, in order to create great art, you have to make great sacrifice. So she makes the perfect scream because she's about to get fucking murdered. Yeah. Right? So like, there could be that element to it too. There could be the element to it too where you were saying is that his equipment was erased, which you kind of forget about, but that's true. He wipes all of his equipment, mm-hmm. um, all of his tapes. And back in those days, you do that with a magnet. That's how easy. Oh, it was really? To do. I you thought just, it was. Yeah. I thought it was kind of yeah, implausible that, that, that was, he got yeah, all that. He done. had that like big industrial type magnet. Oh, that's right. Or, yeah, that's or whatever right. it was, and he yeah. just basically broke in, erased everything, and then left. Oh, because in theory, it, Zach, you could have done that at a blockbuster. Oh my god, it pissed everybody <laughs> off. Yeah, yeah, I forgot because when he's going into that garage to change the tire out, you see that little cardboard box of the eraser mm. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So in that case, the theory is is that he's got nothing left, so he has to use that. I'm gonna push back about against that though slightly because that's that's wild like you could still get somebody to do a scream for him you could go to somebody on the street and go scream yeah and they could just scream and you know what i mean he could get a scream so i think what it's more likely to do with is what i think zach says is that it's because he was in love he, he was obviously in love with her and i think he's struggling to deal with that in a way so he's immortalized her forever mm, yeah. in this movie mm. which is kind of like in a way him paying tribute to her by using her as because like, yeah she wanted to be in the movies anyway so now she's finally yeah. in the movies yeah in which case that's it that's it that's just it's kind of a bittersweet perfect end for the movie and i feel like it also it, it kind of relevels the movie so like as goofy as the movie gets 
then it kind of like brings it back down to earth in a way that I think's like it's it's a nice arc for the movie. The, you know yeah, yeah, because yeah. the beginning that scream is like it made me laugh out loud multiple times because <laughs> yeah. it is so so so. When he goes turn all the special effects down except for the scream, it is just comically funny. So yeah, ending with such a tragic real life sounding scream was a good full circle, like he said. Yeah, totally. And I think too, thinking back to what I said earlier on, um, with my interesting interest in now i haven't watched any video essays i'm sure there's a ton of essays about this movie a ton but like there's definitely something to be said for like the scene within a scene that's in this movie and like really i think it also boils down to this is frames within a frame because a lot of the times when we're seeing scenes within a scene what i'm talking about is like like i said like we're looking at john travolta through the window of the ambulance we're looking at the john travolta in a window that leads on to all of the the entrance to the hospital where everybody's running around. We look at the women in the sound booth who are recording the screams and they're in a frame. So really it's kind of a frame within a frame oh, yeah. that he's doing in this movie. Oh, yeah. And then what's really interesting is, is there's a part two, which is a really cool sequence in the movie where John Travolta is, um, when he's trying to figure out, he takes all of the pictures from the magazine of that Dennis Franz uh, sells for money of the car accident. And what he does is he makes like a little flip book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yep. cool. Where he's flipping the picture and all of the, the like the, and now what he's doing there is those are like, he's essentially making frames in a movie on a, on a, on a film. So it's frames within a frame again. Yeah. Like with the yeah. frames there. And I think now what's the, the significance of that is I don't know, but like it's definitely a thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's just, it's just another, it's almost like they're, they're peeling back. It's like, this is what it takes, you know, like we're, we're making a movie about a movie sort of thing. And like, these are the, these are the actions that, that we do every day. And it's like, it's almost like if you were really interested in, film at the time movies whatever how do how do i kind of break into this it, it it almost kind of like shows you a little kind of taste like a like a instructional almost like this is how we do certain things um i mean that you could you can talk about it in that way too like it gives you that little kind of insider's view into that world um let's uh, we can talk about the um the like the craziness that as far as like so they're all in the hospital and everyone is smoking in the hospital oh, that, yeah, just, that yes, just always yes. blows me away yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> travolta lighting up in the hospital and just walking down the halls just like throwing his cigarettes on the ground at i would have loved that so much <laughs> yeah aka the good old days the good old days <laughs> like, that's what you're referring to yeah just everybody definitely. smoking everywhere yeah <laughs> yeah definitely a product of its time you know what i mean the movie in general um i just thought it was funny i just think it's like it's so interesting how there's, and this probably is tied into the frame within a frame thing too, but like there's every time the camera is, there's what I love about the movie is there's so many scenes with like extras. Mm -hmm. There's so many scenes where like bypasses, people, extras are like in, in the, the way he frames the shot is that he allows all of that stuff to happen around our actors or the main story, which leads you to start like wondering about what are these people doing? So at the beginning of the movie, I'm like, what is happening? Like, I'm very fascinated in the conversation that's going on between the police and the paramedics when everybody's coming in. Mm -hmm. 
I'm fascinated also later on in the movie, I'm fascinated when they're in the bar and um, Sally and John Travolta are having a drink and there's two old guys sitting at the bar and they're talking and they're ordering drinks and they're very much in frame because they're like right in front of your face. Yeah. So like, I wonder what their conversation is. What are they talking about? Then we have the um, the sailor where the other the other one, the, the mm-hmm. Sally lookalike is talking to the sailor and then she's like soliciting sex from him. But then he goes and he, like you see the other sailors and like, so every time, there's something in public. It's really interesting because it's like, I'm always like drawn to like what's happening outside, what what's happening in the background, what's going on, which I think is really cool. Cause I, you can't say that about a lot of movies. Um, and like a lot of times in movies too, when, when you have extras in, it's really goofy. Like um, I re- recently rewatched, uh, sorry, I didn't rewatch. I watched it for the first time three days of the condor. Oh yeah. With, yeah. Um, uh, Rob, we talked about last episode. Um, the scenes in that movie where he's running down the street, and I think that movie is shot in New York, but there's scenes when he's running down, or Chicago maybe? Anyway, when he's running down the streets, they do that classic thing that they did in like 80s and 70s movies where they just filmed it on the street and they didn't block off the street. So everybody's looking and you could see there's a guy behind Robert Redford at one point who's going, is that fucking Robert Redford? (laughs) It's like, he's having a look, he's like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna keep walking down this way, have a look, see who it is. so like usually in movies you see that kind of stuff which totally takes you out of the movie in my opinion and then you also in movies you guys do the same as like when you see extras and they're like really bad and they're having a conversation and you're mm-hmm. like god that looks so forced I don't get any of that in this movie I almost get the feeling that the extras almost have their own scripts I mean it could or they could just be real people unaware of themselves being filmed because there is that there is that shot where uh travolta is walking to his office it's on the streets and then the camera is pretty far away mm-hmm. and all he has to do is zoom up and he's just walking amongst real people um because it doesn't seem like anybody who's kind of in that shot is aware or they're moving in a certain way like they would just like just like it's a regular day sort of thing so it's it's really interesting um, in that aspect. I mean, they, I'm sure that there could be, have been some extras, but I mean, with those, with the, these type of movies, you, it, it's almost, you can't tell, you know, it's very, it's very difficult to tell because I guess at the time it, it could have been considered like guerrilla filmmaking in a way, you know? Yeah. They probably didn't have permits for some stuff. Perhaps. Uh, I'm yeah, guessing. maybe. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, was one other thing I was going to say, and I I think my brain is finally fried. So. You know what I would have liked to know for storyline purposes was the old man, you know, where Burke's John LaCalle is in the phone booth and he gets the old guy to call him back in the phone booth. I feel like that was the moment that, you know, they didn't tell who it was, but I feel like that's when we yes. could find out who the actual conspirators were. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. I'm pleased you brought that up then. So who do you think, Zach, like... I think suppose it, it that you had it. Who do you think it was? I think it was like a White House special counsel, like a White House something attached to the president that was kind of doing the backroom shady stuff to keep this uh, soon to be uh, candidate from winning, uh, or, or something in a back room of like the president's cabinet, like a small group that kind of started this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's probably something like that where. They wanted just they basically just wanted some dirt on on him and but and they weren't sure uh, they weren't aware of the type of person that they hired basically to do the job because it, it was like we just wanted pictures we just wanted like dirt on him and you kind of went off script and 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 he was and 
Lithgow's characters was like, I just, imp- I improvised the situation. Uh, I feel that we needed this. We discussed it before and I went with the first plan sort of deal. And he's like, oh, we didn't want this sort of thing. So, And that's what I kind of got where you were talking about earlier about him maybe being in the military. Cause he's very concise, very frank mm-hmm. with him, very blunt on the phone. Yeah. He's, he's, um, and like he's, he, he does that thing where he's in the in the phone booth and he's talking to him, but then he's like pretending to have a conversation about something else, and then he switches, and then he's like, "Oh, it's me. Yeah, we got to do the job." You know what I mean? Like, oh, whatever. Like, yeah, in, yeah. In like it's that's classic. Like, I mean, that just shows how good Lithgow is. Like his his switch, his change from like being like playing a role and switching into business, and then you know what I mean? Like, he, he's quintessential like sociopath. You know what I mean? Like, very but trained. Because he obviously trained, because he does the wiretap on John Travolta. He's recording the whole thing. So the guy's like, a, a, it's not just like a whack job. He's like a, a professional, you know? Uh, very different portrayal of such a character. So in Three Days of the Condor, it's Max von Sydow. He plays that same role as uh, Lithgow. But talk about two different performances, because the way it's written too because in Three Days of the Condor he's just a straight professional he's like and he even admits it to Redford at the end he's like you're really good you could have a future in this because I couldn't manage to catch you on time you know what I mean and it's very much like I'm just doing a job I get paid I don't care who I work for I'm just doing a job and I get paid but yeah there's like a pleasure that Lithgow's taking in this where it's mm-hmm. like it's pretty cool um I want to cut it off let's cut it off it's been over two hours <laughs> I feel like I feel like we could go on for a little bit longer um so coming up on the agenda, uh, us three, we're going to see um, Men this weekend, yeah. which we're all super psyched about. That'll be our next episode, guaranteed. We'll be doing an episode on Men. Um, other than that, I don't really have much to recommend because I've been kind of doing this and then other stuff. So this is all I've watched The really of note this past week. Other than I did catch up with Atlanta. So I'm full of shit. I watched a ton of stuff. I, I, <laughs> I'm all up to date with Atlanta season three upon Eric's recommendation. Um and I'll just say it is superb. Everybody should watch Outlander season three. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, Zach, how about you? Anything? Uh, I highly, I know I told Eric about this. I may have told you, Scott. I highly recommend Ben Foster's new movie, The Survivor. Uh, he plays oh. a Polish Jew who gets put into the Auschwitz and he's forced to box fellow Jews uh, to live. And then it, it mm-hmm. does three different time frames. It takes place when he's in the camp takes place in like 48 49 when he becomes a light heavyweight boxer in like new york and then it goes to like 1963 where he's kind of he's still trying to find a girl that got taken as well but like he's got the prosthetics on his acting is superb it's a really good boxing film too um so yeah highly recommend Awesome, good recommendation. I'm gonna check that out, Eric. Um, besides blowout, I had rewatched uh, Black Mass um, with uh, Johnny Depp because I had been watching all these uh, like Boston crime stories on YouTube, and I was like, oh, I'm just gonna watch Black Mass. It's on HBO. So, I mean, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's pretty incredible. It's a uh, Scott Cooper. Scott Cooper did that, and I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, great movie, great movie. Also, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Johnny Depp, but he's kind of got a bit of a a, a lawsuit trial going on right now. Bit, I don't know if bit. anybody's aware of what's been happening in the news. Um, oh my god, and it's so funny because you were talking about we were talking about Black Mass. I think it was this morning, me and Eric, and um, just a good reminder, just a, like a public service announcement. Johnny Depp is a good actor. Johnny Depp yep. might be a weird person, but he's a good actor. <laughs> when he wants to be a good actor and he's given a good material, like 
because he's superb in that. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 pretty amazing. I mean, it, it's a I mean, it's a great cast, incredible cast, incredible cast. Um, but uh, but yeah, check it out if you can. It's on HBO. I think everything we're talking about is uh, maybe on HBO, with the exception of Blowout. I don't Blowout, know. you can uh, you can find if you're not looking for streaming. I'll just say you can go on if you have an Xbox. Just go onto the Microsoft Microsoft Store. It's only like four bucks to rent. Yeah. yeah, it's on Amazon. I found it on Amazon Prime. One thing I am interested to know, though, is I watched an HD rip of it, obviously, on Amazon Prime. I want to see the cri- the criterion that you have, Eric. Is that Blu-ray? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, it's. Uh, um, I think it's, uh, yeah. it's a restored. It might be 4K restored. Yeah, so I'm kind of curious to see how that looks because I, I might see if I can pick it up because uh, I do see it now and then used that one. Um, I might pick it up just to see because I really would like to see it in that like pristine because I don't know about you, Zach, but the, the, the version I watched, it was decent, but it wasn't like the cleanest. No, the right. uh, the Xbox Microsoft streaming service was, it was comparable to HBO Max, I will say. Oh, okay. So, it was, so maybe it's just a few different versions of it going around. I'm sure the Blu-ray remastered is a hard copy. Blu-rays are always better than... Yeah. Yeah. So that would be our recommendation. If you guys have listened to this and you, you want to check it out, um, seek out the Criterion Edition. It also has wonderful artwork. That cri- the, the cover mm-hmm. of that Criterion is just perfect. Yeah. Like, it's really, really dope. Um, okay, and that wraps up another episode of Movies Last Night. Thanks, Zach and Eric, once again. The boys are back in town. Great episode. Um, I'm exhausted and have my AC has been switched off for two hours and I'm about to die. I'm surprised so. you didn't turn it on halfway through. I feel like I feel so bad right now. I'm like chugging Gatorade to stay hydrated. All right, man. Okay, thanks, guys. This is fun. See you.